He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, November 13, 2021, episode 70. A show dedicated to the memory of Alan Berg, murdered in Denver, June 18, 1984. I have sound on this show that's incredible. Al Zen was one of Alan Berg's best friends. Alan Berg had best friends in Denver, Peter Boyles claims to have been Berg's best friend, but I don't think that's true. I interview in this show Stephen Singular, who says, no, Craig, and he he explains why. Judith Berg is somebody I know who reached out to me and told me certain truths about which I was unaware. She spoke extensively to Stephen Singular. If you're going to understand what happened to Alan Berg, I urge you to read his bestseller, Talk to Death, The Life and Murder of Alan Berg. Peter Boyles is in there. I did not remember that he was competing with Alan Berg at the time. And if you want to know if Alan Berg was competitive, you'd have to ask somebody who knew him, like Judith Berg or Stephen Singular, who wrote an article about him, interacted with him. I never met the man. But my gosh, through serendipity and my ability to put on a show, Harold Dubinsky, who's a protege of the late Al Zen, he has a tape. He's on my show, and my gosh, if you want to hear one Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, listen to Harold Dubinsky. This is the way my show lays out this week. I've got this sound from back in the day, November 19, 1981. Allen Berg was working nights for KOA. And from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock in the evening, instead of going to Lafitte or carousing around town, as those guys were known to do with beautiful women, they came in and they did that show. And you could hear a couple of buddies who revealed themselves and talked about being lawyers. Al Zinn, still a Denver lawyer. Allen Berg trying to pick up the pieces after losing his ability to practice law through his drinking, which he gave up when he came to Denver. But he was quite a personality. He had issues. But the worst issue he had was the fact that he got murdered on November 18, 1984. This sound from 1981 is going to be interspersed throughout. I was on radio with Peter Boyles. I know what a competitive son of a bitch he is. He doesn't want anybody messing with his sponsors, and he'd say, you're poaching, this, that, and he just is very territorial. Okay, that's part of the job. I get it. I have a big ego, too, but Bottom line is, at the time of his death, he was competing with Berg, and maybe Berg wasn't that competitive. Au contraire. Not just people who knew him, Berg himself talking about it with the late Al Zen. 
talking about how you want a lawyer who's competitive as hell. And I love this kind of talk. Here's a snippet. Now, throughout the show, here's the way it's going to go. I'm going to intersperse sound of Alan Berg and Allison talking, but first I want to give you a taste of it. And then we're going to hear from Stephen Singular, who wrote the book, The Life and Murder of Alan Berg Talked to Death, followed by Harold Dubinsky in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, the protege of Al Zinn, a great lawyer of 40 years in our community. He knew Alan Berg, but he knew his buddy Al Zinn even better. And wow, was that guy a legend as well. No wonder Al Zinn and Alan Berg were best of friends. I'm best of friends with our troubadour, Dave Gunders. We talk about friendship, Alan Berg, walking stories, premonitions, and he gives us a song that's perfect. Sometimes you hurt me. We all got hurt in this community when Alan Berg was murdered by a bunch of neo-Nazis. They called themselves the Order, but they were the equivalent of the guys who broke into the Capitol on January 6th. And that's why Stephen Singler is coming out with a a re-edition of his book, Talk to Death with a New Forward, making those connections. And they were obvious now. Instead of Robert Matthews in the order, you got Donald Trump, who is so much more powerful, and he's trolling for assassins to do his dirty bidding. And I hope the gig is up. But back to Allen Berg and how I know he was competitive. Listen to this. I, uh, you love what you do. I, I've never seen a man who had a thirst for the action and the involvement in it. And Al, I, I've used this argument. I want to see what your reaction to this is. I contend that if a man was an attorney and is going to bat for you, doesn't have a really big ego, he's a bum for you as an attorney. No question about it. And I'm, I've heard that so many times argued, and people say, ah, he's an egomaniac. If you ever want to hire a lawyer, get yourself an egomaniac, because he dies to lose. He never wants to lose. Al Zinn never wants to lose. Al Zinn's a fighter for himself, for his own standards, and obviously that has to rub off for the client. No question about if it. If it's the Percy Foremans, the Melvin Bellies, they are the ultimate ego. And we say egomaniac, I think we get messed up on the word. That's a good thing going for you, particularly if you're uh, somebody who's in trouble and somebody fighting for you. Locally, that's true. Amongst the fine local trial attorneys we have, everyone, <laughs> if they were asked, they would have to say they're an egomaniac. Oh, I mean, take Garash, and he's never hesitated to say that. And I think when I was in it, it was the same trip with me. I mean, hey, I wanted to win more in life itself. It was the number one <clears> thing. <throat> and that's the kind of guy to me that makes the great lawyer. He cannot bear to lose. And now to give you another taste of what's to come throughout the show, here's Allen Berg talking with Al Zen, explaining how his old buddy from CU. Yeah, these guys met at the University of Colorado. In a nutshell, Berg grew up in Chicago. Then he came out to CU. He joined the Jewish frat. He met Al Zinn, a bunch of Jewish guys. He went to a bunch of other colleges before he finished, but eventually he came back to marry the woman who he met while he was here, who became his wife, Judith Berg, Judith Halpern. And she's a big part of the book by Singular. And she's still going strong. And boy, does she have powerful memories of Alan Berg and who his real friends were. And who was jealous of him. You can see that Alan Berg was a competitive son of a gun. And I can't imagine being best friends with somebody you're competing against. But I don't know. I wasn't there. But I do know that... Uh, Al Zinn was a big influence, as acknowledged by Alan Berg in this beautiful exchange from 40 years ago. 
So maybe I would get by with it, even might, though I, I had... haven't tried that. Right. It sounds like you got a hell of a head start tonight. What? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You're figuring a way to get by with it. Did you ever think of the danger you're creating for yourself and other people? Does it ever enter your mind? Uh, Do you realize how your reactions are slowed down when you're behind that wheel? Do you realize you're like a man with a gun in his hand when you're driving in that condition? Can I tell you something? Yeah, tell me. I am at home. I'm not on the road. I'm talking about when you are behind the wheel, sir. And when you're at home, if you're drinking yourself into oblivion, you're not doing yourself a hell of a lot of good, are you? Uh, okay, think it over. Call me in the morning. Oh. Take two aspirin. All right, one line's open. 861-TALK, 861-8255. Al's in. I'm doing Al's in. See, this is what Al's in actually does with his clients in his office. I'll be back with you in the morning. Uh, talk to your mother. Leave me alone. I got a busy practice. I actually picked up this style from Al's in. This is true. My talk show is a direct copy of Al's in's office. Isn't that fantastic? Thanks again to Harold Dubinsky. You have to listen to his interview talking about the late Al's in. And Allen Berg. It's amazing. So here, without further ado, it's my honor to interview Stephen Singular, author of Talk to Death, The Life and Murder of Allen Berg, soon to be re-released by Lemur Press with a new introduction. Enjoy. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MBLaw LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hello? Stephen Craig Silverman. Yes, sir. What an honor it is to speak with you. Thanks for making the arrangements to take your valuable time. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. I've been uh, sort of aware of you. You know, I've been a Denverite my whole life, and I remember a young journalist came to town named Stephen Singular. Are you that guy? Yep, I'm that guy. <laughs> Tell everybody about whereabouts you grew up and when you made the great decision to come to Colorado. Well, I grew up in a town called Linden, Kansas, in eastern Kansas, not too far from Topeka, town of about 900 people. Um uh, very rural background. I uh, went to the University of Kansas, graduated with a degree in history in 1972 and packed my car and uh, aimed it to the east and drove to New York City. I, I was a huge fan of Bob Dylan and Bob Dylan came from a little town called Hibbing, Minnesota in 1961 and set the world on fire and 
I said, decided to, you know, go east and see what, what happened. I lived in New York for eight years, as basically as a freelance writer, and worked for magazines like uh, New York Magazine, some very small magazines. One was, I started a magazine called Juris Doctor, which, as most people know, is the name of the law degree that lawyers get. And then moved up a little bit and wrote for New York Magazine, the New York Times Magazine, and some other magazines in the city. Uh, after eight years, I was I was burnt out on living in New York. As a freelance writer, my sister lived in Denver, and she said, uh, come on out to Denver. It was uh, September of 1981, so it was 40 years ago in two months. And uh, I said, I'll come out and I'll stay with you for two weeks. And I never left. Uh, within a short time of getting there, I was hired by Denver Magazine as a, as a writer of uh, feature articles for them. The magazine lasted for six months and it folded, as many magazines do. And I was back to freelance writing until early 1983. Um, and basically, I started writing freelance for the Denver Post in 1982, uh, late uh, 1982. The first article was about Barry Fay, the music promoter in, in Denver, a very big-time promoter at that point. And the second article was about a man named Alan Berg. And I had been living in Denver about a week when I was driving in my car and turned on the radio and it was uh, on the day of or around the time of Yom Kippur, uh, the Jewish holiday. And this man was on the air talking about racism, talking about anti-Semitism, uh, talking in a very uh, for straightforward and, and uh, uh, serious way about, you know, serious subjects. And I was... Uh, Can I, I just was, say I was listening to that same show? Because yes, I was driving yes. to Beth Joseph Synagogue, where I went every year back in the day, back when there was Beth Joseph at 8th and Ivanhoe. And I'm listening to Alan Berg on the air talking about, hey, I'm a Jew. Why do people hate Jews? It's Yom Kippur. Let's talk about it. And it's like, oh, my God. At that yeah. point, I could drive. I'd just become a lawyer. But my old man, he said, you know, a Jew, especially one in a public position, they got to go to shul or at least stay away from uh, doing their work because it makes it difficult for other Jews who observe the holidays, which a lot of us do. So I said, what kind of Jew are you, Alan Berg? But there I was listening to him, which you're not supposed to be driving on Yom Kippur. You're not supposed to be listening to the radio. So what kind of great Jew am I to put him down? And anyway, I thought I'd just interject that, Stephen. That's the same year. 81 that I became a lawyer 40 years ago. Wow. Yeah, so I had lived in New York. I had grown up very attached to the radio. At night, you could pull in Chicago, New Orleans. I'd never heard anything like this, you know, on the air. It just, it was so provocative and it was so honest in, in its own way. And his voice was interesting. I mean, he had a kind of a scratchy, somewhat nasally voice, not made for radio. 
and uh, but he just he you could just kind that's of your opinion coming off of this. That's your opinion. He paved the way for guys like me. Anyway, he's uh, yeah. Well, no, that, he I was mean, a big influence on my life because I listened to him not just on Yom Kippur, but uh, I I have a tape and I provided it to you, and we're going to play yeah. sound during the podcast of him interacting with his good buddy Al Zinn. Thanks to Harold yeah. Dubinsky, he provided it, and uh, the voices there, the patter. Uh, yeah. He was one of a kind, wasn't he, no. Stephen? Oh, yeah. He was uh, He was totally one of a kind. As I was saying, you know, regardless of the voice, the energy coming off of it, the passion, the probing, you know, just like getting under your skin, and, you know, real quickly, like making you think, making you feel, making you think about things that can be uncomfortable. And having those feelings, and it was—it was just a, 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 he had an electricity about him, and you know, if you're a radio person like me, you couldn't help respond to it. Now, what do you mean when you say you are a radio person? Well, I grew up in this little town, and we didn't even have television until I was about ten, and so starting about that time. I was just, uh, well, a little bit later, probably 12, 13, 14. I was very, very drawn to music. I just, I, you know, I just love rock music. I'm a musician, playing bands, all of that. And I, I was just, you know, drawn to the radio more than the television as a medium. I lay in bed at night, listen to baseball games. St. Louis was the big baseball outlet for, at that time. I was very much oh, I drawn gotcha. to sports. Right, but you're you're just talking all around radio now. People hear, I'm I'm into radio. It's a talk radio junkie. I doubt that you are that anymore after reading your book. But Alan well, Berg, he he was sort of a he was a trailblazer in the medium and in Denver, Colorado, working in buildings. Uh, I know the people, and it, it's just a story that fascinates me. But. Uh, had you really heard talk radio before that? Not, not so much. Like I said, I, I was living in New York, and you know they think they have the best of everything, but there was nobody that I encountered. I was listening mostly to music, and I don't sports talk radio hadn't really come up that much at that time. I mean, Howard Stern hadn't really come up that much. Uh, you know, I, right. I was there in the mid mid seventies or so. So I mean, it was pretty early on. And I had never really encountered talk radio that much until I got to Denver. Denver's was is a big radio market. It, it was a time, and as I said, I'm fascinated by the guy. Never met Alan Burke. Listened to him all the time. You put it together, uh, especially with this new preface for your book. Let's talk about your book. You ended up writing. Uh, the Life and Murder of Alan Berg, it's Talked to Death by Stephen Singular, and it's going to be re-released, I sure hope so, because the lessons of what happened to Alan in the 1400 blocks of Adam Street on July 18, 1984, it shook this city, but it was kind of a precursor of what we're experiencing right now, and your preface uh, your your piece called Trolling for Assassins. Uh, your book is really timely right now. Am I right? Yeah. It, it, the story has just grown. I mean, as I say in the preface, 
you know, I, I was, I was very interested in Alan when he was alive. I met him in his studio and out of his studio KOA uh, in late 1982. And then when he, when he was killed in, in June of 1984, uh, you know, I, Rolling Stone asked me to write an article about him, which I did. And that evolved into the book, but I, I had friends in Denver who said, you know, don't write about him. He's, he's not that important, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I was very, uh, drawn to him and i was drawn to the story of what we let you know what we were learning of happened to him as initially the denver police launched a vast investigation thinking this was one person who had a beef with him on the radio and and killed him as it turned out there was a person in denver named david lane who had a beef with Berg uh, and argued with him on the air sometimes. He eventually moved to Northern Idaho uh, in, in 1983, joined a group called The Order. The Order was based upon a violently racist anti-Semitic novel uh, by a man named William Pierce called The Turner Diaries. Uh, it was written in 1978, I believe, and it became sort of a uh, a mainstay of the radical right. It was a very, very bloody uh, piece of writing. And, and, and we're going to get to all of that. But you know what you did that was so beautiful right at the outset of your preface? Because time passes and suddenly I'm a senior. But I was born in the mid-50s. You could probably relate. And yeah. World War II was, you know, it was history to me, even though it was sort of near. But Allen Berg killed... 40 years after the end of World War II by neo-Nazi anti-Semitypes. And here we are almost 40 years later. Have you thought about that, Stephen? I bet you have. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Because that, that, that movement, that violent movement, has, has in, not only grown, but it's manifested uh, in, in certain areas of our society that are far beyond the nine men who started the yes. order in the fall of 1983. And, you know, as I write in there, uh, Timothy McVeigh studied the Turner Diaries mm -hmm. a lot. And one of the sections of the Turner Diaries is that you fill a truck with explosives and you park it in front of a federal building and you detonate it in the morning. That's exactly what he did. And he April. used to sell that book. The Turner yeah, Diaries. He, he did. He went around with two uh, rub shoulders with some of the same people that are written about and talk to death. Uh, uh, fellow travelers of the order. Uh, they they hid some of the members of the order when they were later on the run. Uh, so the, you have the McVeigh case. You have racism uh, rising I mean, up you tie certain... it all together. You write about Columbine. Yeah. I mean, those guys worshipped Hitler, too. They they carried they, out their atrocity on Hitler's birthday. And, you know, just just like McVeigh did it uh, at 9 in the morning, like the Turner Diaries. These guys tell us why they're doing it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then we've seen these right-wing groups you know, I mean, it's a mishmash of people who came together on January 6, 2021, but some of them, again, are fellow travelers of some of these people. And we've just seen this resurgence again and again. It's, it's really anti-government. I mean, it's really based upon 
you know, a way of thinking that is in many ways is hard to grasp because that's sort of the core of it. I, I don't know what they want in place of the government, but that's that's a root uh, element of it. Can I just say I loved your book, Talk to Death. I can't believe I never consumed it in all these years. And the death of Alan Berg meant so much to me. I read the book by Kevin Flynn and Gary Gerhardt, and it's good. And I've talked to those guys about it, but your book was more about Alan, the guy, the dude. You met him. I never had the pleasure. You brought him to life. But what was it like? The guy was tall and skinny as hell, right? Yeah, he was well over six feet. I think he weighed 150 pounds. Uh, he was just bone, bone thin. You know, I mean, I, I think much of his diet was coffee and cigarettes. Now, wait a second. You put in your book, I think I just read by it the first time, but I went back and read it again. 50 cups of coffee a day? 50? I told I, I told people that wasn't possible, so I went to the source. I went to his ex-wife, Judith, who was with him the night he died, not not right when he died, but right before he died. And I said, that's not humanly possible. And she started adding up the numbers, breakfast, mid-morning, lunch, afternoon, evening. <laughs> and I said, okay, it's ballpark 50. But that's, you know, that's what he claimed. So right, we will get to Judith. God bless Judith Berg. I know yeah. her, but you know her really well. And she gave you access. Three packs of filterless Paul Malls. Yep. Yeah, he smoked a day, a day, and he was known for when he would get worked up in the studio over a subject. He he was known for not only batting away the microphone, but starting fires in the wastebasket beside the you know in the studio. It, it was a different era, and we'll get in the yeah. end of what if Alan would have lived, what would he have been like? But do you think he could have put down the cigarettes, or would he have quit? Uh, I don't know. You know, the thing he said about it that I found so interesting was he said, I'm, a, I'm an addictive personality and I'm addicted to cigarettes. I'm addicted to coffee. He had been earlier addicted to alcohol, but he beat that. He said, I, I addict as an addictive personality. I addict people to me. And I thought it was a very, very insightful comment. You know, people who liked him tuned in, people who couldn't stand him tuned in because they never knew what he was going to say or do. And it was a kind of addiction. It's like I said earlier, he got he got in your mind, he got under your skin. And that it's a very rare talent, you know, and radio is an intimate medium. It feels like that person is talking to you. You know, television never really feels like that. But in radio, that voice is in your head. And it's a very intimate connection. And he was he was born for it. And he was unpredictable. I don't think he knew what he was going to do next. He was very ADHD. You researched how he was as an attorney. The bottom line is uh, he grew up in Chicago, kind of a loveless dad, Joseph, and his mom. I'd call her an average Jewish mama, but he didn't have a real connection to Judaism or or that came to see you. That's where he met Judith. Uh, and then they decided he'd live in Chicago. They would live in Chicago. And how did he do as a lawyer there? Well, he, he met a couple of lawyers there who were connected. He would later say he had a little tendency to exaggerate and would later say he was connected to the mob in some way. I don't know if that's true or false. That would be hard to prove. 
but he was connected to uh, you know the criminal criminal people and he was doing things that in the courtroom that he did not like within himself he did not feel um, that he you know should defend people whom he knew were to be guilty i mean that, that, that again the conscience part of this is is an important part of it because i think it plays out on the radio in the clip that he plays that that you actually have with al zinn the lawyer in denver he brings that up about lawyers defending people if they know they're guilty and all that had you ever well, heard that before i sent it to you What's that? Had you ever heard that Al Zen? No, no I had never heard that, that clip. But It's a remarkable uh, two hours that I have, thanks to Harold Dubinsky, and especially since they're talking about being a lawyer. Yes, they are. That, that's true. And so in order to sort of uh, medicate himself away from these bad feelings that, that he was doing in the courtroom, he started to drink. And he was a he was a bad drinker. He drank martinis. He had really never drunk before, and he got drunk very quickly. And as with some people, his personality would change, and he became aggressive, and you know, not that much fun to be around. And this sort of spiraled out of control. And here he was, a lawyer. He was making very good money. He was driving a fancy car, living in a fancy apartment in on the north side of Chicago. He and Judith were hanging out with, you know, some well-known people, going to hockey games, just living a really good life. And then it started to go down and, and down and down. And then he started having epileptic seizures to go mm -hmm. along with the drinking. And they started to get worse. They're called, the small ones are called petty mall and the big ones are called grand mall. And he was having more and more grand mall uh, seizures. Judas said, you know, let's, let's go back to Denver and try to start over. And that, that was a big come down from where they were. So he came back to Denver, uh, early, late 60s, early 70s, you know, was just looking for a job anywhere. Got a job in a shoe store, got, had a run in with a woman whom he felt was racist, quit the job or was fired. And, you know, he, he's just basically knocking around Denver trying to find himself. He eventually opens a, a shirt store, the shirt broker. And one of the customers is a man named Lawrence Grossman. And Lawrence Grossman is on the radio in Denver on, the, on a talk show. He has his own talk show. Penny banners with Berg. And Berg is very, very good at bannering in the shoe store, this subject, that subject, any subject. So Lawrence says, well, why don't you come on the show sometime? And he comes on on a Sunday afternoon. I think the Broncos are planning it would be almost impossible to pull in an audience at that time. And, you know, he's, he, he just starts talking about controversial subjects, things that Lawrence Grossman has never touched. The, the phone lines light up. And he's just, as one employer would later call him, he's just a natural. He, he, he just, he understands this kind. It's a little bit like writing. You have to understand what is interesting. You know, just that instinctual feel for what people will react and respond to. And he had it right from the beginning. All right, but that's what a good trial attorney does. And I don't know if you heard the whole two hours, but I got it. I could not stop listening because it's entertaining and it's my field. And I'm very interested in the life and times of Allen Berg. But Chicago was a corrupt place, especially yeah. where he worked. They elect judges. 
You got to give political contributions. And it's just a lot of dirty dealing that, thank God, we haven't experienced in my lifetime practicing law in Colorado. And he came out here and kind of marveled how clean the system was. And I think that ate him up inside that certain judges and prosecutors were on the take and he was part of that. That's smelly. Maybe that's why he drank. And you touch on the drinking. And of course, we've all heard that he was an alcoholic and he gave it up. But it seems like that was a pretty short time period, relatively speaking. What was it, about four or five years that he started drinking too hard? And he said, boy, I can't handle this. And then he, he just put it down. That's correct. It was just a few years, as you say. So mm-hmm. that's interesting. And he, he, he was self-aware to know that he was addicted to things and, and he was smart enough to know that alcohol was not his friend. Uh, it, it, I, I would say this. He was whip smart and he was good at bantering and he would banter with anybody. And if you called, even if you were nice to him, he might turn on you a little bit, but it, <laughs> it, it was just unpredictable. Yeah, it was it was totally he said, I don't know what I'm going to do on the show today. You know, I don't know what will happen. But he would say just incredibly spontaneous, provocative things and things that many people, you know, simply would not say. I mean, the world wasn't as politically correct back then as it is today. But still, I mean, he was unfettered. But was it a shtick? Was he doing was he doing it for ratings? Well, he, he he had a bad period. He came on the radio on about a 73, 74. And then this guy in Denver got a hold of him and, and had listened to somebody in New York who was very provocative. This was before Howard Stern and said, you know, maybe you ought to just try being outrageous. And and he Judith would later say he was very angry with himself he was angry with parts of his life. His marriage had ended. He wasn't uh, happy about, I mean, I mean, he was always a rather uncomfortable person just to begin with. But she said a lot was going on leading to his unhappiness, and he just sort of let the anger out on the air. And he was hanging up on people and yelling at people. This was the mid to late 70s. And it just, it was the low point of his radio career. They once held a a contest in Denver to say who's the most liked and most disliked personality on the air. And he won both awards. That's one of my favorite stories. The other story that I, I loved in writing the book was that in 1981, Dan Reeves came to Denver as the new coach of the Denver Broncos. And this was in the winter before football season. And he went to May Nichols Arena to be introduced to the, you know, large crowd, 15,000 people in McNichols Arena. And they picked Alan Berg to introduce him. And so when the PA announcer said, and now to present the new coach of the Denver Broncos, here's Alan Berg. And all these people started doing and yelling and screaming. And there was just this huge eruption. And Reeves, who had probably been in Denver about three days, looks at him and says, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was just, it was kind of the, the question of Berg's life. I and mean, it, it wasn't just the, the reaction of the crowd. Alan Berg was a different looking dude. 
I mean, yeah, it, it looked oh. like he was trying to cover up his face with all his facial hair and his bangs. And well, what, yeah. what was up with that? Well, he, in the late 70s, his, his grandma seizures had been getting worse and worse. And then he had one that, that didn't stop. And it just kept going, going. They had to take him to the hospital. And they had to basically open up his skull just to cut it open and got in there and found a tumor. And it was, you know, it was life-threatening if they didn't get it out right away. If they did get it out, it would probably impair his mental faculties and it would probably affect even his speech. So, but there was no choice but to go in and, and, and do what had to be done. So they did it and they said, or they told Judith while he was out, you know, look, he may, he may never talk again, or he may never talk coherently. And, you know, so they have the operate. I mean, that's his career, right? By now he's seven years in the talk radio business. He, he's, he's going places, and that would have been absolutely devastating. Within a week or so of the operation, he's talking. Within a few weeks, he's talking the way he used to. I mean, he beat alcoholism. He beat the, the brain cancer. You know, he beat his own internal demons in many ways. And so by the time you get to the 1980s, you know, he will soon be hired on KOA, which is the flagship station for really for Denver for, you know, I, I used to, I lived in Los Angeles briefly and could listen to Nuggets games on KOA. And that's how powerful it, it reached the whole Rocky Mountain West and it went east as Boy, well. Boy, those were the days. If only the Nuggets were back on a better radio station, if we could get them on TV, but we digress. Yeah. It, uh, it's I, I I KOA is the radio leader. They should always be greater than they are. But uh, with the Broncos there and the fifty thousand watts, you can hear it all over America. Allenberg yeah. going to KOA that was a big deal. I remember it well. It was a very big deal. It was it was a vote of confidence for him. And <clears throat> I don't think you can say well like okay he conquered all his problems and. It was smooth sailing, but I think he was getting, you know, he was getting older. I think he was maturing in certain ways. Um, he, he, in 1983, I believe, he visited Israel, and it was a very moving experience for him. Uh, you know, he had, I think, some conflicted feelings about his Jewishness, but I think he was you know, kind of putting all these pieces of his personality together. He was dating a woman uh, in Denver, and was that seemed to be going well. He was on the best radio station in the, in the probably the western United States. And, you know, he was coming into his own in January of 1984. Well, let's, let's not pass right by the Jewish part, because I'm a Jewish guy, and I, okay. I ended up doing, what, about 16 years of talk radio. Um, and I, Allen Berg talked about being Jewish all the time, which of course caught my attention. Right. And you even brought up the subjects that he would uh, bring up. It would bring out the anti-Semites. But let's right. go back a little further to, because as a Jewish person, he's a martyr of sorts. He was right. killed for being Jewish, whether right. he was religious or not. And he was not religious. As I talked about, he didn't observe the high holidays. He was somewhat contemptuous of organized religion, although 
through your book, I think the trip to Israel affected him, but affecting him more than that was being raised by Dr. Joe Berg. And I loved your book. Could you dive into the Berg parents and, and tell us about his Jewish upbringing and who were Joseph and Ruth Berg? Well, I'm, I'm trying to think back. Uh, Boy, here's what you wrote, because you've written yeah, a lot of books. But you said that Joe Berg could kind of pass for not being Jewish. He looked Swedish, and that he was prejudiced against black people. And he kind of passed himself off as, you know, a regular, just another Chicago guy and not necessarily Jewish. And, and maybe that affected Alan. I'm just thinking about it. I think that what Alan was very sensitive to was was hypocrisy. I, I think it, it in all forms, I mean, if you were conservative on the radio or conservative calling in and you were not making sense or being hypocritical, he would jump on you. If you were liberal and called in and you were not making sense, he right. would jump. I mean, that to me was, was his incredible strength and, and interest. I mean, he wasn't predictable. He, he was in general terms, I guess you would call him a liberal, but he was more complicated than that. And, and I think the hypocrisy that he picked up in his father, that, you know, the, the, the racism that he talked about with his dad, I think it affected him for the rest of his life. Uh, he, didn't, think, he didn't like his father. He didn't respect him, right? No, he called him an unforgivable dentist. That was his line. And, and with that, I mean, to be a dentist, it's not a, it's a profession. It, it's necessary work. God bless dentists. It's right. a learned profession. But it, it was his dad's bigotry that bothered him? Yes, it was his bigotry that bothered him. And his and, bigotry against black people in particular? Yes, yes, it was. And he he talked about growing up on the south side of Chicago, and that which was a you know very mixed neighborhood, and you know being around um, you know many different ethnic groups, and and you know fitting in with all of that. I mean, I so I think when to then go home and hear that what he was hearing probably around the dinner table, and I think I mean the, his sister talks about in the book. I interviewed a sister and mother sitting together in their apartment in Chicago. And, you know, the father treated the mother in ways that I, I don't think the sister liked or or Alan liked either. I mean, you know, domineering or, or not, you know, totally respectful or things like that. Eventually it comes out in this conversation. It's one of my favorite things in the book because it's it just it's it's really about the heart of a family and you know the, that the dynamics are always complicated and they end up you know in complicated kids when they grow up and he was complicated and so i i you know i didn't try to skirt those things but tried to examine them through other people you know through the people who are actually involved in them i mean that's that's sort of the the best part of being a journalist you know you get access to people's private lives and they talk about very serious things like you know losing alan when he was 50 years old no that that is and uh, just for background, uh, are you a Jewish guy? No, no, I'm not. I, no, I, no. But you wrote, you, you thought that was an important part of the book, and I respected that. I learned a lot. I always wondered about it. And 
Tell us about Mama Ruth. Joe was dead before Alan. Am I right? Right. Yeah, I mean, she was, it was just very interesting because, you know, his sister kind of wanted to tell the truth about the inner workings of their family. And the mother was resistant. I mean, she's a generation older and we don't talk about these things. And, you know, don't, don't wash the family's dirty laundry in public. And his sister just kind of kept pushing her into, uh, you know, into eventually talking honestly about the things that went on. One of the interesting little sidelights of that is that uh, the night Alan was killed, uh, someone in Denver, and I I don't remember if it was Judith or I think it was someone else, called um, his sister and, and her. It husband. was Al Zinn. It was the I, lawyer. Okay, that, that, it was that, Al that, Zinn that, who yeah. is a yeah. mentor to Harold Dubinsky, my guest. Right. So called uh, the sister, sister to, to, to say, how do we go tell Ruth that Alan's dead? Mm-hmm. Because this probably won't be news, but you know, she, she has to, you know, if it, if it does turn out to be any sort of national news, we need to get to her first. So they concocted a story about going over to her apartment to ask the bar some money. And right, you know, just before they got there, she was listening to the radio and it was breaking national news. I mean, this is the first time in the history of the United States that a media personality is gunned down, you know, outside his apartment just for being exercising his freedom of speech on the radio and for being a Jew. Yeah. And that's yes. And that's yes. Let's go back to that part. Cause I know Judith Berg. I've known her through the years. She's reached out to me at important times in my life. And I love that about her. I've learned about Alan from her and maybe someday she'll come on the podcast. But gosh, she talked to me, and I expect she talked to you about Alan's days when he came from Chicago to go to the University of Colorado at Boulder, joined the Jewish fraternity Phi Sigma Delta, made some buddies, made the acquaintance of a beautiful girl at East High School named Judith Halpern. Tell everybody about that halcyon time in Alan Berg's life. Yeah. There was, I always say when you write a nonfiction book, you have to have at least one person who will talk to you and who wants to tell the truth and who's not afraid of the truth. And this book was in, in, in part made possible by Judith Berg. I mean, she was the linchpin because they were divorced in 1978. You know, he's killed six years later, but they never stopped being together and and uh you know interacting she and loving each other it doesn't mean they didn't dislike each other at times but even alan admitted that judith was the love of his life right right and so yeah they met uh, uh you know she was this very attractive young woman she was going i think to study uh dance i believe in new york um but that you know, she decided to come to De- or stay in Denver, and eventually got together with them. They got married. The story, one of the stories she told me that always stayed with me is that 
uh, in the when this would have been the fifties, I guess. You know, right? He, he, he met Judith not just in the fifties, fifty one. He's yeah. high school. He sees her under right. uh, the portico. Right. It's a beautiful story so, the way you wrote it. Her parents were, you know, big Democratic uh, figures, big figures of the Huge Temple Emanuel people. They were part of the progressive wing of Denver Democrats, and they yep. entertained uh, entertainers who passed through town. Right. right. And so some... <clears throat> I guess people, black people, you know, couldn't or wouldn't or didn't want to stay in, you know, hotels with all the prejudice of that time. And then she, uh, Judith's statement to me was, you know, when you're, when a Yasha Heifetz comes to town, you know, he's going to come to our house and and hang out, you know, or I, I, I don't know if she said Duke Ellington, but I think that was one of the names. But yeah, uh, so here's Alan, you know, kind of, really didn't come from a cultural, uh, political, liberal background in his own family. And he's kind of in this, you know, the, the center point of sort of Denver culture, uh, you know, uh, liberal politics, et cetera, in, in that house. So I think it was, I think it was a, you know, a, a door opening for him. And, uh, and I think it's, part of the whole reason that Judith was such a significant part of his life right to the very end. And one of the stories I always tell about the book is that on June 18th, 1984, the night Allenberg died, Judith and Alan went to dinner at a restaurant in Lakewood and they were driving and they the drove Jefferson back. 440. Yeah, and they drove back into where his apartment was, as you said, on on Adam Street off Colfax Avenue. And he parks the car in front of his condo, uh, Volkswagen, and they discuss back and forth. Should you come in and spend the night or should I take you to your car? And they go back and forth. It was kind of like their whole relationship. Should we do this or should we do that? They eventually, he said, well, I'm tired. I got to get up in the morning and work. She says, okay, I'll call in the show just add, you know, a little spice to it, and you can take me to my car. As they're talking, the people who are going to kill him are parked mm. in front of the window. They're watching all of this. There are four men in the car watching. And so he eventually puts the car in gear, drives to the, the parking lot where she is. It's quite a ways away. Comes, drives back. Um, pulls in the driveway, steps out of the Volkswagen, and then there's this sort of iconic picture that I think millions of people have now seen of him lying dead uh, near the Volkswagen in a pool of blood. Judith is going to spend the night at a friend's, so she drives her car to her friend's, and by the time she gets there, they're watching the television news program of Berg's assassination. And I mean, she is that close to pulling into that driveway and losing her life. So speaking with her, especially at that time, was always, it was just such a moving experience. And then she went on to, I think, do great work teaching about racism and tolerance and all of those things. So it's just, her story is important. You know, his story is important. And I'm just, I was, I was really 
uh, honored, basically, to be able to write it. Right. And he was kind of a good-looking dude. Back in the day, Allenberg, 6'2", that's a nice height. Judith was a beauty, but it really was their brains and their own bantering and repartee. I mean, I met Judith. I heard Alan. Both are whip-smart. And Judith... Uh, could go back and forth with him. I bet they had conversations that would have been epic on the radio. And in fact, she would call occasionally and uh, be a plant caller, that sort of thing. But if I could, Stephen, you write so beautifully. And of course, I'm fascinated about this guy who sort of wasn't uh, part of any synagogue and turned off to a lot of Jewish traditions, but he talks about being a Jew. And ultimately, he's murdered for being a Jew. And you wrote about this, describing his relationship with Judith, who comes from such a prominent Jewish family in Denver, and you wrote it this way. Decades later, let me start over. Decades later, when he was on the radio, Berg would often be characterized as a liberal. Had he truly been a person of liberal democratic sympathies, he might have slid easily into life at the Halperns and found a home, a niche among people who supported labor unions, Zionism, and intellectual high culture. He was considerably more complicated than that, and in time felt as estranged from that culture as he did from the golf-playing Republicans at the restricted country club on the other side of town. From the beginning of their relationship, Berg and Judith questioned their Jewishness, what it meant or was supposed to mean. Their misgivings and dissatisfaction with the answers they came up with were another bond. And then you write, if I could just continue, because I think it's important to your larger themes, Berg's views on black people were similarly complicated and cannot easily be reduced to an adjective. He did not have a trace of conventional bigotry, yet his relationship with blacks was love-hate. In Chicago, Judith was once severely beaten by a gang of black youths, Berg was ready to kill. And you go on from there. I just loved your book, and I learned so much about Alan Berg, and thanks for writing about that part of his life. It's important, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's important. I mean, we we live in a world of labels, and, you know, I mean, some of that's necessary, but, you know, people are are, are very complicated animals, you know, and we... We, uh, you know, I guess what drew me to him so much, well, I mean, to be honest about it, one of the things that drew him to me was like, I was raised in this, you know, small town, repressed, don't talk about this, don't talk about that, you know, all of that. And, you know, so he kind of spoke for me, you know, I was like, this guy will say anything. He's not afraid of words, you know, he's not afraid of expressing his feelings. He, he does it in public. He says the things I can't say. You know, I may think, think certain things, but I, I can't articulate it. And I mean, I think he was, you know, he's like a steam valve. And, and, and that's a very unusual role to perform in a community. And, you know, so he gets killed and, and, and you know, you know, well, okay, there's going to be a response to that. And all. I mean, the, the memorial for him went on all week. You know, people drove home with their light or drove with their lights on as a tribute to him. They had a memorial service where vast numbers of people came out. I mean, the expression of it was really an expression of love. 
And, you know, you, you would not necessarily have predicted that, but that was the impact that he had. I mean, this voice is irreplaceable. There's never been anything like him on the radio since, uh, before or since, you know. And so he played this very unusual role, you know, part comedian, part commentator, but all around provocateur. And I think, you know, you get older, your feelings get dulled, you're, you stop thinking. You know, we need people like this around to keep us, you know, energized. Right. And, and a lot of people don't know feeling. this story. And, yeah. and you are a brilliant historian, a gifted writer. And I don't know if you've seen Hamilton, but that's a work of genius with profound lines like, who lives, who dies, who tells this story? And have you thought about you being one of the people who are a biographer of Alan Berg? Really, to me, you wrote the best book about Alan Berg. I like Kevin Flynn and Gary Gerhardt's book. Love those guys. I, I know them both well, and th that book is definitely a must-read, but so is your book, Talk to Death. It's about Alan Berg, and what a responsibility. Do you feel that? Yeah, no, I, I felt like I, you know, I gave it, I gave it my all. And I, there was, you know, a few uh, danger spots along the way. I interviewed uh, people who were close to neo-Nazis and I was threatened and I was told that I was betraying my race as a white man and that if I wrote things that they didn't like, they knew where I lived and, you know, and I had nightmares about that. And I, I, you know, said, if I get through this, I'm never going to write about this subject again. I did. I have gone on and written about it, but years later, it was a, it was a very, very powerful experience. And it's, it's a powerful experience now speaking with you. And, you know, I read the book recently because it's, it's being reissued and I was just, I was struck by how Berg, you know, comes off the pages. I mean, it's he's so alive to me anyway. I mean, not just because I wrote the book, but I'm just quoting him and I'm just, you know, describing him. And it was a, you know, it was just a fantastic uh, opportunity to to write about what I think is, you know, the core American subject for all writers, or not all writers, but for many very important writers is race and ethnicity in America and how we live out the American principles and ideals around race and ethnicity. I mean, I don't think there's any bigger subject than that. And I don't think there's been a bigger subject since that, since Mark Twain. I mean, he, he laid it down in Huckleberry Finn and it's been there ever since. It's in Faulkner. It's in countless, you know, significant writers. And that's the subject that always intrigued me. You know, I, I wanted to write about something that important, but I just would never have imagined that, you know, these events would unfold in such a way that I could do that. So, you know, it, 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 I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm just saying, I'm just honored that, you know, I was there in the right time at the right place to, to try to, to write the story. The right, but, but you met him and you had done a piece on him and yep. did you like him? Oh yeah. He was, he was very different, at least with me, you know, I'm a, I was a journalist. So, you know, that, probably factors into the equation but he was he was soft-spoken you know quiet humble 
not not the abrasive personality that he had been at times on the radio. Right. And did, did he know, want you to write a nice article about him? Well, you know, that didn't come up. I mean, you know, he, he was charming, at least when I was around him. And, and you know, it, I didn't, none of that influenced, you know, what I wrote. I mean, I was just trying to, you know, sort of get to the core of him. But I, I just, uh, I was fascinated by his personality. I thought he was very funny. The movie Talk Radio by Oliver Stone was came out in 1989, and you know there are very good elements in the movie. I don't think it captures the sense of humor that Alan Burry had. I mean, if you listen to that clip with, I was not able to listen to the whole Al Zinn thing, but I caught some portions of it. And the immediate thing that jumps off of you is just that humor. I mean, yeah, it just rolls out of him. Right. He's making fun of himself. He's making fun of the lawyering profession. He's just, you know, it's he's just rolling. And it's it's all funny. It's not it's not snide or, you know, put down or anything like that. And you know, I, I was just fascinated by, you know, his ability to do that. Well, I bring up who lives, who dies, who tells this story. I didn't know Alan Berg. But I was in the Denver DA's office as baby DA, so I took notice of the murder from that perspective. I'd been an avid talk show listener. My parents listened to, who was it, Joe Pine was an early pioneer. Yeah. They yes. liked it, and they liked Allen Berg. They, you know, he'd stir up conversation. And, of course, I've known Peter Boyles for a long time. Did a lot of radio with him, same stations, same shows. And I have a mixed relationship with him now because I realize he's a pretty bad guy. And I don't like him telling the story about Allen Berg. And I don't trust his version of events, especially after speaking to Judith Berg. And not a lot of people appreciate, but you put it right at the start of your book, that at the time he was killed, he was in a competitive battle with Peter Boyles. And I know how competitive Boyles is. And I don't know Berg. I don't know if he was similarly competitive. You met him. But they were knocking heads then, trying to beat each other on morning radio, right? No, that's true. That's true. I don't think Berg would necessarily have said that he was competitive, but I, I definitely think he wanted to you know, have the better ratings. And I, I can that. guarantee you Boyles did, and I guarantee you they competed for sponsors, and Boyles doesn't like people poaching his sponsors, even though he'll poach yours. I'm just saying that, and I, I also think that uh, Allen Berg was eclipsing Boyles in terms of notoriety. You weren't going to write an article about uh, Peter Boyles. You were going to write about Allen Berg, and when 60 Minutes came calling, the star in Denver was Allen Berg, right? That's correct. In January of 1984, five months before his death, yes. And did that make Boyles jealous? Well, I can't speak for him, but I'm I'm sure, you know, there's always professional jealousy in, in media relations. So and, and probably trying, a lot yeah. of other places. And, and and I've heard Boyles talk about uh Berg being the first recovered alcoholic he ever met. And I take him at his word on that, but I think when they knew each other, it was when what does Boyles call it, the nightmare years? And yet Berg was on the wagon. I don't know how those two could be best friends right then. Could they? 
Well, I didn't I didn't write about that. Well, you know, I know, I, but you know, somebody did if you Google singular yeah. boils in Allenburg, you'll find a Chicago Tribune article. You probably read it, which said uh, Peter Boyles took the stand and said he was Allenberg's best friend and blah, blah. I, I just, were they really best friends? According to the people I interviewed, because I, I, I didn't know, you know, that side of the story at all. But according to the people I interviewed, that wasn't the case. It you wasn't know, that, the case at all? Yeah. And I called Peter Boyles very early on in my research and wanted to talk to him, but you know, he never called back. So I, you know, I, I couldn't include him in the book. So I can't, you know, I can't speak from, from, for him. And he nonstop bashes you for what? Writing that they were competing at the time of death? And you talked to Judith Berg. She would know about that relationship better than anybody, wouldn't she? Yeah. But, you know, I, again, I, I'm interested in the bigger picture. I mean, there are there are personality squabbles everywhere. No, but, but I've got that. But I mean, if a guy was really Allenberg's best friend, then why would he consort with the kind of people who killed Allenberg? I just have to ask that kind of question. And there's a lot of provocative stuff like Allenberg, who took outrageousness to a new level on talk radio, even though he was more liberal. And we'll get to how he would react. Did he create the monster that talk radio has become with the right-wing outrage machine? Have you thought about that, Stephen? Well, I I think that I think his bad period on radio was motivated. It was emotionally driven. I don't think it was politically driven. The interesting question would be with the politicization of talk radio you know, basically since his death, how he would have interacted with that. Because he wasn't, you know, he wasn't, at least as I saw him, necessarily a political animal on the radio, as so many people became later on, where they were so clearly partisan and, you know, so, so much that way. Uh, so I, you know, I, I don't know how he would have evolved through that. I mean, he, you know, he could still be alive Today, uh, he would be in his late 80s, but that, that would still be possible. I listened so, to him enough, and I know Judith Berg well enough, and he would have hated Trump. Can't we agree on that? Alan Berg would have skewered Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. Again, hypocrisy or, you know, lying, things of that nature, or misabusing the truth, etc., uh, I, yes, absolutely. He would have he would have seen through all that. But, but and he would have seen through this big lie and the guys like Joe Oldman and Randy Corcoran who put out that bullshit. But I, I want to get back to what happened before Berg got killed and how he came to the attention of a lot of the right wing haters. Wasn't it Boyles who had a guest he had on from the Primrose and Cattlemen's Gazette? And and they had published the protocols of the elders of Zion, and and Boyles had him on. And I don't know if he put him on like he puts on the John Birch Society guys with ultimate respect. How did that go? I mean, I, when Boyles put him on, why did he give uh, you know air to that kind of crap? Yeah, as as I recall in the book, and I I'm trying to. 
you know, straighten out the facts. But I believe he was on that show, and then Alan decided to have him on. And that that's the way I recall it. And that became a rather heated discussion. And I believe those people were, you know, they had their tendrils into the, you know, the far right circles. Right. And, and so, you know, but it was really, I mean, that was a part of it. And that was, I, I think that was in 83 and then maybe, maybe early 84. Uh, but, uh, the the David Lane connection was the real connection because when the order started in late '83, in 1984 they decided to start you know, let's do the robberies, let's counterfeit the money, uh, let's blow up a porn theater. These are the small events that that, that they begin with, and then let's pick let's pick some uh, Jewish assassination targets. <clears throat> I mean, one was Henry Kissinger. Uh, one was uh, Norman Lear of All in the Family. Uh, but And another was Morris Dees of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Right, right. But but Lane said, let's start in Denver with Alan Byrd. Right. So anyway, it was David Lane who fingered Byrd and, and fed that information to Robert Matthews, who was the head of the order. And the, the four men... <clears throat> then came down to uh, to Denver to to assassinate Berg. The killer was named Bruce Pierce, the man who actually pulled the trigger, but they were all complicit. See, that's why I thought about Bruce Pierce so much in my time as a DA. And let me just say, I think the case should have been filed in Denver. And I'd say that to Norm Early, who's been a guest on my show. I'd say it to anybody. I did not like the excuses made for not bringing the prosecution in Denver to me, it should have been a death penalty case. Bruce Pierce, a several times convicted felon on the run from the law at the time of the crime, uh, comes and empties an assault weapon into a guy just because he's Jewish and prominent. That guy should have been prosecuted for capital murder. Am I wrong, Stephen Singular? No, absolutely not. I, I, I agree totally. I mean, they should... Uh, if ever there was a you know a time to make a statement, that that was it. I mean, this was a lot of malice aforethought. So, you know, and you have yeah. to send a message that this stuff doesn't go. And you bring up such a beautiful thing, trolling for assassins, tying up your book. I'm so glad it's going to be re-released. Talk to death by Stephen Singular. But you brought up one sore subject for me, which is Mark Furman. And, you know, yeah. how Mark Furman could be a racist who used the N-word, lied to an extent that he screwed up the O.J. Simpson trial, and he got rewarded by being the crime expert on Fox News Channel. I thought, wow, that's that's just jacked well, I'll, up. I'll do, I'll do you one better than that. Mark Furman was... Um, uh, we know all about the racism that was that was in his psychiatric report that was in 1978, I believe. The Simpson case is 16 years later. He wanted to get off the force because he was self-acknowledged, violent, you know, danger to people, et cetera, et cetera. They just said, no, you can't leave. When all of that went down, he left the, uh, the uh, LAPD. Where do you think he settled? Idaho. 
He used to resettle in Sandpoint, Idaho. That's where the Berg murder weapon was found. Mm-hmm. It was found right outside Sandpoint, Idaho, a known haven for, you know, people with racism, et cetera, et cetera, racist feelings. It was found in the home of Gary Yarborough, who was a member of the order. It was found in a room with a shrine to Adolf Hitler. So this is where Furman goes. So Furman then, after the trial, after all that happens, he probably wrote his book, whatever. He appears on the Oprah Winfrey show. And she effectively is a part of rehabilitating this guy. Here's the most prominent black woman in the United States, if not the world, the most successful, the wealthiest, and the most prominent, who has a, a big audience. And she effectively, you know, does that. One of the quotes from him, and it was in the courtroom and it was verified, I think the woman's name was Kathleen Bell, said he told her he wanted to round up all the African-Americans and burn them to death. Genocide, right? And she puts them on television. And I and my wife contacted Oprah and said, you know, if you want to have a counterbalancing view of what this guy represents, what he's done, the violence he's committed by his own admission as a police officer in Los Angeles, beating minority suspects until his pants were soaked with their blood. This is the guy you're promoting on your television show. Why don't you do something to balance that? Of course, never heard that. But you, you fight the good fight for as long as you can. You've done that. You know, other people try to do it totally wrong and it remains a, a, a bitterly sore dividing point in our nation still today tell everybody how they can get your book talk to death the life and murder of alan berg well the the original book is still on sale on amazon so you can go on there it's not it's not expensive i mean it's 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 it has you know it's not like two hundred dollars it's like eight or nine dollars i think then a group called Lemur Press, L-E-M-U-R Press, is reissuing, as we speak, the updated version, which is the same book, but the, but it has an introduction that really covers the 37 years from Berg's death until the present. It's brilliant. And- Trolling for assassins. And your point is that whereas Robert Matthews could only round up people by going to places in Idaho, Montana, the great Northwest, found some people in Colorado. Now there's the internet, and now we've got a situation where the former president is the guy rounding up the assassins. And it's it's a straight line that you draw uh, from the Berg murder. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's and it's, and it's all true. The guy who founded Aryan Nations Church, which brought in all the members of the order, Richard Butler, you know, would say after Berg's death and the order committed 240 crimes, I had nothing to do with that. I'm just a preacher, you know, exercising the right to free speech, you know, completely distance himself. I mean, we've seen this recently as well. So, yeah, I mean, if you if you put out and there's one other piece of this that that's important. If you put out that kind of hatred, bigotry, etc., not only are you going to draw in people, but you're going to draw in some unstable people, mentally ill people. Bruce Pierce, the killer of Allenberg, had had mental problems throughout 
his his younger years. I've written other examples of this. So you 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 have to be very careful, you know, about about what you're doing when you're spreading that kind of venom because you don't know who you're hitting or what they're going to do. Stephen Singular, thank you very much for your time. I know how busy you are. Let's stay in touch. Very much so. I'd very much like to stay in touch. Thanks for having me on, Craig. You're really welcome. Thanks. Bye now. Rest in peace, Alan Berg. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're to, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Don't you want to read the book now? I urge you to order it. The pictures are worth it right there. Allen Berg is a young boy. Beautiful wedding picture of him and Judith. It's extraordinary. What an opportunity to interview Stephen Singular. And now before I bring on Harold Dubinsky, let me play more of that sound of Allen Berg and Alzin interacting. Just like a couple of dogs in the heat barking on cue, those guys would go out at night and they'd wine and dine looking for beautiful women. And it was just a lifestyle that you don't see that much anymore. Smoking a lot of cigarettes, carousing. Sounds like fun in a way, doesn't it? Allenberg and Allison got along famously. Here's the way Allenberg introduced Allison. Alan Berg on KOA. I don't mean to cut Chrysler short. Lyakol is having enough trouble. <laughs> Had to jump his spot. The man doesn't need that. We'll give him a replay a little bit later. All right, Al is here. Now, just for a moment. Now, you probably have as active a practice and are almost... Uh, he's like... There's a movie, if you, re, if you recall, seeing it's called The Last of the... Oh, what was it? They just did it. Paul Muni did the movie originally. The Last, uh, the Last Angry Man. Okay. Al is kind of that kind of person. Although he's a sweetheart. He's got a heart of gold. And a lot of people who really know him know that about him. Much like myself, of course. 
And then how can you not love these two guys talking about what it takes to be a great lawyer in this next extended soundbite? You'll hear a classic Allen Berg who hates bigotry, but he's not afraid to pick on a black guy feeling sorry for himself. It's all contained in this amazing sound. Oh, but you're still confronting something that every lawyer confronts, which is this, isn't it? That the fact that people come to you is a terribly emotional time in their life. Anyone who's arrested, obviously, they see the world coming apart from you as virtually like a surgeon has to sit there in a somewhat objective fashion and say, look, I can take care of this part. I cannot solve your entire emotional woes of your entire lifetime at this given moment. I have an immediate job to do, which isn't necessarily to indulge you in your sobbing, crying hysteria, but to get the job done as best I can in the legal area. Like you, know, you do handle a lot of divorce work. It's the same kind of thing. The client comes to you, don't they? The lady comes and she says, I want you not only should tear his toes out one at a time. I like that in the court order. I like each of his teeth pulled, you know, one at a time. I would like his current mistress to be torn to shreds. And incidentally, can I get that from the court? And Alice says, get out of here, you animal. <laughs> no, but isn't it true? Isn't that what happens? They come in? That's true. And he's got a job to do. And a lot of you people out there, you do this with me on Talk Rail. Alan, could you do this for me? I can't do it for you. Nobody on earth can. Lawyers can do a certain things within the confines of law. So your comments are invited. 861-TALK, 861-8255. One of the finest lawyers I've ever known and people, Mr. Alzin, is here tonight. And I can tell you right now, if you could get in to see him, you'd be a very lucky person. I personally have to wait in line like a dog. Can you picture Alan Berg? True. I had to wait on the street the other night to see this man. It's true. They were lined up there with cash in their hands. Of course, I said I had a bad check. Al knew it. <laughs> okay. 861-TALK. 861-8255. Al's in is here to answer all the questions you ever wanted to know anything about the world. Al says, Al says no, no, no. Yeah, we'll have fun with it. Okay. Line one, you're on KOA. Yeah, so I'd like to actually give some two or three questions. Uh, remember, just one caution here now. Al, under the, uh, the, uh, the guidelines of the, uh, of the Bar Association, et cetera, cannot give individual legal advice. He can discuss aspects of law. Am I correct, Al? That's correct. Okay. Well, well, what I wanted to ask you was about my age, you know, and... What... Well, you want to know how old you are? You go to a lawyer to find out how old you are? What do you think? No, no, I say I want to know uh, what does he think of me trying to go to college now and become a lawyer at my oh, age okay. is 29. Oh. Well, that depends on you and your previous academic background. It's more and more difficult to get into law school now. Mm -hmm. Uh... You have to virtually have guaranteed a college degree, and you have to take the LSAT tests, which are very difficult. Well, see, I have a two-year degree right now it's in computer programming. And I also would like to ask you about... All right, let me ask you a question. Why do you want to become a lawyer? Because, At this point uh, in your life, I mean, what, what do you think I you're going to derive from it, except lots of bucks, as you probably perceive it? Well, no, I have a, a lot of uh, interest in, in the law, you know, and I would like to find out more about it. But is there a certain thirst you have about the law? I mean, like, would you be willing to spend the rest of your life defending the indigent in lieu of making money? Sure. We all used to say that at the beginning. Yes, I have a goal. I I Later on, you'll say, so where's the money in front? I figure I'd make enough to live off of anyway, you know. And, you know, I just wanted to ask him about the, you know, what field of law would be the best to try to go into, you know, like contract law or, or you know, or something like that. Mr. Zand, any... Well, the best field of law that you go into uh, is usually the, the field that's most accessible to you after uh, you graduate, if at all. It's very difficult for many young lawyers now to find jobs. There's a lot of amount of work. Let me tell you what it's like, sir. Very competitive field. I'm a licensed attorney. Look what I'm doing. It's not easy. Uh, you know, maybe that's for some other reason, though. 
Don't no, look for a no, pot no. of gold at the end of the rainbow just because you graduated. <laughs> I, yeah, I, uh, to this caller and to our entire audience, and I'll see if Al agrees with this, I think people do not begin to realize, particularly for active trialers, it is probably the most grueling, high-pressured work I've ever been attached to in my life. What I do here in talk rail is a waltz compared to what I used to undergo when I was a practicing attorney. See, I have my degree in computer programming. I'm having a very hard time finding a job myself. I'm a black man. I don't know if this has got something to do with it, you know, as far as discrimination and stuff like that. But Maybe because you have a degree in computer programming? They Maybe. won't take you because you're black? Pardon? You mean they won't take you because you're black because you've got a degree in computer programming? They're begging for you. Everybody's saying, give me a token, please. Come on, don't, don't give me that jazz. Come on, you hit the streets. Don't wait till they knock on your door. You go out after them. Don't be a lazy person. You'd be a lousy lawyer. Get off the show. All right, one line's open. 861-TALK, 861-8255. No, this is true. Now, Al, of course, fortunately, has just come through some very uh, you know heavy surgery, some open-heart surgery, and is 100% today, thank God. And, Al, how much would you say this, this career, seriously, has has uh, affected you emotionally or physically, et cetera. How would you relate to it right now? Well, you can't let it. Uh, if you uh, let the practice of law, <clears throat> the everyday, <clears throat> excuse me, the everyday problems that you have affect you, uh, particularly uh, in trial law, where virtually every client expects not only to be acquitted on the charge uh, they're, that they're brought in on, but uh, for every case uh, in the future, they want permanent immunity. Uh, if you get emotionally involved, You'll be a basket case in two years. There's no question about it. I think you and I both have known many lawyers who have become that. We simply couldn't deal with the pressures of it. I saw one yesterday, tragically enough, in court uh, just north of Denver, uh, an old friend of mine that's no longer practicing law because of that. And uh, it happens every day, particularly in trial law, where the lawyers, all of us, have difficulties collect collecting fees. And uh, if you let that uh, upset you, as it must to some degree, then uh, the practice will eat you up. Two years, that'll be it. I mean, now, you love what you do. I, I've never seen a man who had a thirst for the action and the involvement in it. And, Al, I, I've used this argument. I want to see what your reaction to this is. I contend that if a man was an attorney and is going to bat for you, doesn't have a really big ego, he's a bum for you as an attorney. No question about it. And I'm, I've heard that so many times argued, and people say, ah, he's an egomaniac. If you ever want to hire a lawyer, get yourself an egomaniac, because he dies to lose. He never wants to lose. Al Zinn never wants to lose. Al Zinn's a fighter for himself, for his own standards, and obviously that has to rub off for the client. No question about if it. If it's the Percy Foremans, the Melvin Bellies, they are the ultimate ego. And we say egomaniac, I think we get messed up on the word. That's a good thing going for you, particularly if you're uh, somebody who's in trouble and somebody fighting for you. Locally, that's true. Amongst the fine local trial attorneys we have, everyone, <laughs> if they were asked, they would have to say they're an egomaniac. Oh, I mean, take Garash, and he's never hesitated to say that. And I think when I was in it, it was the same trip with me. I mean, hey, I wanted to win more than life itself. It was the number one <clears> thing. <throat> and that's the kind of guy to me that makes the great lawyer. He cannot bear to lose. The real lawyer's lawyer type guy. He's the guy who never makes any money. He doesn't ha he, he's too pure law. He doesn't have enough emotion. Is that true? It's true, and yet uh, the, the real lawyer's lawyer will probably never be a trial lawyer either. Exactly. He'll be the appellate lawyer. He'll do the research. He'll do the, all the stuff that the background stuff that he gets very little credit for, by the way. And he'll be wise enough to stay out of the courtroom. I like my producer, Larry Crandall, who really deserves all the credit for the great talk radio here on KOA and gets little credit. All right, we'll come back with Al Zinn. A couple lines open, 861-TALK, 861-8255. And then the guys wax philosophical about the practice of law and what it means and how it's akin to being a salesman and it goes back to when they were at CU and the fraternity. Give a listen to this. 
Alan Berg on KOA News Talk 85. My guest, Mr. Al, is an attorney at large, uh, famed attorney in the Denverland area, well-known by all people in this community, prosecutors and defense lawyers alike. He doesn't like this stroke, but I've known Al a long time, and if there's a man who knows what goes on in the legal scene here in the Denver community, it has to be Mr. Al's in. Our lines are full right now. Let's go to the phone. Line two, you're on the air. Yes, sir. I can know uh, where I can uh, contact you. I have to make an appointment at uh, I, I might make this this quite this this preface here. You certainly all any of you out there have a have the right to call Mr. Zinn. I am not doing this promotionally for Mr. Zinn, nor is Mr. Zinn here to promote any businesses on behalf. In fact, I Mr. Zinn is probably the busiest man in town. Am I correct, though? Wrong. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> no, no. What I'm no. What I'm trying to say here is this is not. Uh, we are not undertaking this thing as a solicitation for business for Mr. L. Zinn. Oh, that I. Now, you certainly, sir, can look in the phone book. His name is Z-I-N-N, and if you care to look it up, that's your choice. Okay, fine. All right, appreciate your call. All right, one line's open, 861-TALK, 861-8255. That's called a little legal disclaimer for Alan Berg, so the FCC shouldn't come in here, and I shouldn't get arrested before the night's out, because Al's had enough trouble with me. Okay, we're going back to the phone. Line one, you're on the air. Uh, yes, I've been asked by, uh, as a fellow practicing attorney, for all the practicing attorneys to Denver, what a priceless show this is to have Two you Meshuggan is on together. You're doing a great job. Wait, I, do we both know you? <laughs> There's got to be somebody we know. Okay. See, Al and I were at college, 1951 at Boulder. Did you ever think, Al, it would all come out like this? Never. No, no. Yeah, like I'm this. trying to remember. When you, when you were in college at that time, did you did you perceive yourself being an attorney? Never. What did you think Always was going to happen? Always a salesman. I was a, a marketing salesman? major. Right? Well, what are we? Is it, Are we not salesmen right now sitting here at this moment? I mean, a lawyer is, has to be the ultimate salesman. When you walk up there with a bad case with a defendant who ought to get buried alive, and you convince the jury, give this guy a break, you tell me a better sailing, selling job in this whole world. Three eyewitnesses to a murder, and you convince them they're all wrong, and the guy walks out, you show me a better sale in the world. i got to see it. And it's equally as important uh, to sell your client, because uh, people today are somewhat fickle, perhaps more so in the domestic relations field. And uh, they want to have confidence in their attorney, and they want to uh, make certain that their attorney uh, has an aggressive feeling against the other side. And they lose their confidence equally as rapidly if you tell them how wrong they are and that they're going to lose. They'll move on quite often uh, to other attorneys, and that uh, is a difficult area for many attorneys to deal with. Well, I think one of the problems, because I came from a legal environment, which most of you have heard me talk about consistently, which was terribly corrupt or marvelously corrupt, depending on how people perceived it, in which a man would move around and around to a lawyer until he got the guarantee at the right price. That was the deal. This does not go on in Colorado. And I think that's kind of refreshing here. Al, I mean, you, would you ever sit in an in a, in a office and ever say to a client, <clears throat> I guarantee you would win? Never. Any, any, any attorney that does that uh, should have his face slapped, and the client should leave the office with a crescendo. But that's what they're looking for. Ultimately, that's when the client comes to you, he says, I want a money back virtually guarantee that you will do the following thing. I don't think people Alan, are that much uh, that way anymore to that, to that degree. And most people have had some contact with the attorneys or the, the system and know that uh, there shouldn't be any guarantees. I don't find that to be the case very often at all. On the other hand, I would like to comment on something that you said to me that I'll okay. always remember years ago in the, early, in the early 60s when we used to meet occasionally when you lived in Chicago. And uh, I think your uh, remarks are well taken. Uh, thank God that our community was never and never has been, never will be in the same total state of chaos uh, that uh, you, you found yourself uh, in practicing law in Chicago. Very good point. I do feel bad for Allenberg. He 
really is in denial that he's lost his ability to practice law in a way he is and a way he isn't. He talks about still having a license, but what good is it if you are disbarred? Alan Berg on KOA News Talk 85. Al's in, has kindly agreed to stay over till 10 o'clock all the way through the show, and I think you're in for a treat. So Al has such an insight into the law. So many times I've said, Al, you are so good at this thing here. All right, 861-TALK, 861-8255. Al's in here until 10 o'clock tonight. He's the attorney. I'm the talk show host. I'm still an attorney. I don't know why, but I am. Now, this next soundbite is really delicious because you never know who's going to call, and this is somebody who wants to break the bones of Alzin on the air, and you are defenseless on live radio. Alzin, as you will soon learn from Harold Dubinsky, would overbook himself and maybe have four different court appearances all around the metro area set at 8.30, and you're lucky if he's going to get there before noon for any of them, right? And now a caller who maybe was a former client or a competing lawyer is questioning the ethics of doing that. And boy, Al Zinn's in a pickle, but he responds in an interesting way. By the way, uh, Marshall Fogel, great friend, my guest last week, tells me he knew Al Zinn really well. And he reminded me Al Zinn was a good athlete, a good ball player. And you can hear the competitiveness and the uh, tenacity of Zen, who gives it back to the caller as best he can. All right, line four, you're on KOA. Yes, Mr. Zen, I'd, I'd like to pose a uh, brief question concerning legal ethics. If an attorney agrees to represent a client in court and the attorney fails to appear at the designated time and fails to notify the client, uh, would that be considered unethical behavior? Indeed. It happens every day. It's happened to me on a multitude of occasions. There's, there's no chance, there's just no opportunity to be everywhere at once. One of the great problems for an active trailer, as Al Zinn is, and I can go back to this myself, when you had to cover 15 to 20 courts in the morning, and they all started approximately at the same time, to try to work all this around. And, of course, some judges are really, without compassion, understanding the nature of the lawyer's practice. Now I know Al has had problems with that considerably. Did we answer your question? Yes, yes, you did. And now the character of Alan Berg and Al Zinn shines through even more. As they talk uh, with a guy who wants a drunk driving defense, and I won't give you the setup because it precedes the fun part of this interview, but the guy is saying, if I keep some whiskey with a new seal on it, and if I get pulled over drunk, can I break it open in front of the cop and start guzzling it, and maybe that's a good defense? And Al Zen responds with some humor, and Berg starts one-upping him for more humor. And then they get a lady caller, and they're off to the races. So maybe I would get by with it, even might, though I, I had... wouldn't try that. Right. It sounds like you got a hell of a head start tonight. What? <laughs> You know, it's interesting. You're figuring a way to get by with it. Did you ever think of the danger you're creating for yourself and other people? Does it ever enter your mind? Uh, Do you realize how your reactions are slowed down when you're behind that wheel? Do you realize you're like a man with a gun in his hand when you're driving in that condition? Can I tell you something? Yeah, tell me. I am at home. 
I'm not on the road. I'm talking about when you are behind the wheel, sir. And when you're at home, if you're drinking yourself into oblivion, you're not doing yourself a hell of a lot of good, are you? Uh, okay, think it over. Call me in the morning. Oh. Take two aspirin. All right, one line's open. 861-TALK, 861-8255. Al's in. I'm doing Al's in. See, this is what Al's in actually does with his clients in his office. I'll be back with you in the morning. Uh, talk to your mother. Leave me alone. I got a busy practice. I actually picked up this style from Al's in. This is true. My talk show is a direct copy of Al's in's office. Okay, we're going back to the phone. Line four, you're in here. Yes, Alan, I wanted to ask your... Uh friend uh question oh, you might be an attorney you address them properly counselor law okay this is in um is it just a myth or is it true that if the uh, an officer the jews are better no <laughs> i'm sorry go ahead if an officer writes you a ticket and makes a mistake like say your age or your uh, address that they can throw that out of court none of those are proper defenses i'm sorry dear oh okay i've had a lady one day i remember she called me and she says I argued in front of the traffic court judge. He wrote my age down wrong, and I told him he had no right to further the ticket. He says, I don't care, and he found her guilty of whatever traffic violation she was guilty of. See, those technical things, that tech, pleading is not... See, years ago in the old common law days, which is where our law really came from, they had very formalized approaches to pleading, so very small technical mistakes. See, pleading today, the forms that they actually file against you are much more liberally interpreted than they used to be. Am I right, Al? No question about it. And they allow amendments even during the course of trial that they never would have thought of allowing before. I'm doing so good here. I may go back into practice. Okay, appreciate your call. All right, one line's open. 861-TALK, 861-8255. I don't want to say Al's in makes a lot of money, but in an hour, in his office, I should see this in the next five years here in Talk Real, busting my brains out for mediocre sponsors. And have a wonderful dinner. Get a swell meal. Buy some jewelry. On and on and on. Get some furniture. I pitch my brains out. One-minute pitch in Chicago. I used to do this thing. Walk away with 10 Gs. Here I get a buck and a quarter. It's ridiculous. All right, line one, you're in here. So you can see those guys were great pals. The way they interact, Alan Berg saying he modeled his show after Alzin's law office. Wait till you hear Harold Dubinsky further flesh out Alzin and Alan Berg. And finally, more Berg humor, but at the end it gets kind of sad because Alan Berg is trying to give a thoughtful answer to a guy who wants to get violent over a property crime, which is an understandable instinct but when you hear Alan Berg toward the end of this advise the guy that you don't stand a good chance against a felon on the street and to know that within a few years a felon named Bruce Pierce, who had done time in the penitentiary over prior convictions on the run from the law for many other crimes, he'd failed to appear in court. That's when he was suddenly there in the middle of 1400 block Adams Street with an assault weapon gunning down Allen Berg, who had just dropped off his wife, Judith. Thank God she wasn't there. Thank God she can tell this story instead of people who mislead regarding the story. Allen Berg the next day was planning a big show about gun control. He was always against guns. Other talk show hosts went on to become shells for the gun industry Shameful, shameful to say that you were best friends of somebody who really wasn't your best friend. Shameful to twist the memory of somebody who cannot defend themselves. This show dedicated to the memory of the late Allen Berg. So glad to have Stephen Singular on. And our next guest, Harold Dubinsky. I mean, he's an amazing 
guest and he provided these tapes. Thank you, Harold. And what a treat you have in store. The Troubadour coming up as well. All our shows are indexed for time. You can skip right ahead. If you would tell a friend, pass this along. Enjoy. Thank you. Sir, you make a point, but there might be a point you might address yourself. You can keep blaming the white guy, but if you as a black person do commit a crime and you are caught for it, that's called transference of blame. If you did it, man, you did it, and you can't blame every white guy in the world because you did something wrong. Dig it? Okay. One line's open. 861-TALK, 861-8255-932 in the evening. Al's in is my guest. Line two, you're on the air. Hello. Yeah. Mr. Zinn, please. Go ahead. Uh, I have a question pertaining to uh, a vehicle break-in. Uh, I drive a late model pickup, and it's uh, it's a nice pickup. I, uh, I'm proud of it. I've had it broken into twice. Uh, my question is, if I should buy a silent alarm, uh, wear a little receiver on your belt, such as telephone people use to get messages, uh, uh, this receiver goes off, you go out, catch the guy in your truck, uh, administer some badly needed justice, where does this leave me as far as lawsuits go? You're on your own, obviously. I wouldn't worry about it. If you catch the guy in your truck, you're not going to get any lawsuit back from him. Well, I understand that uh, if I should, you know, if he should be injured... Uh, you have I'm, no right to I'm take the law into your own hands. There's ways to handle that. In other words... Uh, Better get some help before you go and rescue your own truck. Well, I understand. For your own benefit. Uh, but I just wondered about the lawsuit part. Am I going to be on the hook forever? Uh, well, there's been some interesting cases of even people who were trespassers at the time where a person might have justifiably taken action where they've been sued and they won because of excessive... Uh, uh, physical abuse on that person. The issue is how much force you're going to use in administering your own justice. Uh, the maximum amount that I can afford to do. Well, that's where you're getting in trouble. That's that's well, the danger line. You know, nothing permanent. But... Now, as if a guy's taking your truck, does it really justify you taking his life? Well, I wouldn't take his life. I'm talking about breaking some bones. Well, in other words, is a, is a truck worth broken bones? On his part, I believe it would be. Well, I can sympathize with that. I can understand your feelings. But better, you should call the police. You know the truck. Well, you get the license number, whatever. you best in the average citizen. I, I uh, think that a word of caution always goes out. And this goes for police activity on the street. You well, aren't going to beat the policeman on the street. And when you're involved with a felon on the street, the, the, the odds of you beating him are bad. Well, I can understand that. I'm not talking about a vehicle that's stolen. I'm talking about the personal items taken from the vehicle. Well, obviously, you can use a, a degree of force, and if that force is excessive, there's a possible level of responsibility. Am I correct, though? No question about it. Okay. All right, appreciate your call. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go. You know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place, so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? 
These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaeldailylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hi, Craig. Hey, Harold. We've got to stop meeting like this late at night, late Thursday night. Thanks so much for doing this. I understand you have a really big job tomorrow that would preclude doing an interview. Tell everybody what it is. Tomorrow's babysitting day for the granddaughters. So... I'm glad you have your priorities straight. Here I see you in court every day. You've got to have the most court appearances in Colorado history. Have you ever kept track of that? Uh, I have all the docket books, but I'm too afraid to look back. And thankfully, it's not like it used to be. Listen, Harold, welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. After 40 years, you deserve it. As I recall, we both broke in and the famous class of 1981. 1981. May of 81 was when you were sworn in? No, it was uh, October of 81. Right. So you took the later bar. I was in May of 81. You were in October of 81. Oh, you are my elder. I salute you. But still, we're in our 40th year now. Kenohara Mazel Tov. Thank you. How it seems you... like yesterday when uh, Shermie Feinsilver was swearing me in. It seemed like yesterday when I saw you in Jefferson County Courthouse filling the hallways. That's one of the signs of some normality returning to the world, seeing Harold Dubensky advising yet another client caught in the tentacles of the criminal justice system about how you're going to smooth your way out of it. And you almost always do. Well, you know, I was in there doing the same thing I did when you were a deputy district attorney, trying to put uh, the best spin on my client's situation, trying to figure out a way to get the best resolution to her case possible. And if not, I guess we end up setting things for trial. But uh Right, and that's like how I you. got. Yeah, that's how I got to know you. I was a young prosecutor. Harold's probably defended many tens of thousands of DUIs, and we will talk about how he got into that and other misdemeanors, some felonies. Harold does it all. But let's go back to your beginning. You're in Craig's Lawyers Lounge, where prominent attorneys come to relax, tell war stories, kick around current events. 
I can't, I cannot stop thinking about the late Alan Berg, the guy who used to be a member of the Illinois Bar, ran into problems, came to Colorado, became an acquaintance and a friend of Al Zen. Uh, he was your protege of Al Zen, for better or worse. Everybody knows that, Harold. But before he met Al Zen, before he came to Colorado, he had to grow up somewhere and go to some law school. I bet you couldn't go to a great law school like Boulder. Where did you go? Right. Well, I grew up in Houston, Texas. Um, I went to college in Evanston, Illinois, Northwestern University, where I met my future wife-to-be, Patty, who grew up here in Denver. And we met Patty Thorne, because she comes from kind of an interesting Denver family, just in case people want to put it all together. But she's not just Patty. Patty Thorne, I think I knew her before I knew you. I think you did, too. And uh, uh, I went off to law school, and we sort of had a long-distance relationship. Um, And I went back to law school in Texas because back then, if you were a resident of the state— it cost maybe $1,200 a year total to go to law school back if in Austin. You were, if you were smart enough to get into the University of Texas School of Law, which is one of the best. I don't think the requirements were as high as they are now, but yeah, I was very fortunate to end up there. Um, went to law school there and came up here one summer to work. Um, I had a planned internship at the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, and I had gotten that through the school, my law school. And in April of that year, and I was supposed to come up in June, there was a federal freeze on things like that. So it got canceled, but I'd already made plans to come up here. I uh, came up here, and Patty's dad, Bernard Thorne, was an attorney for many years here in Colorado. He's still with us at 91. And he had a tenant in his building that he owned on 1337 Delaware Street by the name of Al Zinn. And uh, I grew up in Houston with first cousins whose last name was Zinn. And they weren't related, my cousins in Texas and Al, but Al agreed to talk to me. And I went in with a resume. He came around his desk. He was smoking a cigarette, wearing clogs, and uh, ripped up my resume and said, Um, If you've got cousins by the name of Zen, you know, you can work with me. I'll pay you 600 a month and you'll just follow me around and pick up as much information as you can about what I do. And that's how I uh, got hooked up with Mr. Zen. Oh, my goodness. Al Zen, a Denver legend. And you'll hear more about him. You'll hear him on the radio. Thanks to Harold. We'll get to to that. But. I don't want to leave Texas quite that fast because I know you're a connoisseur of some things, Texas, and one of those is Kinky Friedman and the Texas Jew Boys. Can you just that is correct. T- t- tell people why you are into it and maybe give them a tip that they should be too? Right. Well, my parents would not let me go to the camp that a lot of my friends went to that was owned by Kinky's parents. It was called Echo Hill Ranch Camp. It was a summer camp. And Kinky and his buddies were some of the counselors there, and that's where uh, he started his act. Um, He ultimately became a 
internationally known recording artist with his uh, band Kinky Friedman and the Texas Jew Boys. It was a very satiric yet political band. And, uh, you know, one of the first integrated bands, especially involving uh, a group of ragtag hippie-like country musicians. And uh, in many ways, even though I was denied the chance to go to that camp, uh, Kinky became my spiritual guidance counselor. I saw him many times. First time actually was in Chicago. And uh, many times when I was in law school, he played a legendary show at the Hill How the Hillel House in Austin, um, where I drank boiler makers with Kinkery, and uh, uh, you know that Smoke was a night where I had to, had had to question had to question whether or not you know staying in law school was a good idea. And I actually, you know, was inspired by Kinky and several other uh, singer songwriters like him, and uh, had a little group of my own when I was in Austin, uh, which uh, no one will ever admit going to any of those shows, and that's for good reason. Give us I'm the thankful. name. Austin, the music capital, of course. Well, right, yes. I was known as uh, Harold Dubinsky, the lewd balladeer. My parents were very proud of that. The, uh, you had nasty songs? So, you know, very much in the vein of the uh, Kinky Friedman songs. I, you know, sang a lot of Kinky songs at the time, and uh, it was just a way to blow off steam with law school buddies. Um, and, you know, we played... Uh, a bunch down there. Uh, now you knew the, Kinky. Uh, Did Kinky know you? Kinky really didn't know me well. I mean, he knew me as a fan. And, you know, he used to, once he started writing books and he would come up here and do the book tours, and I would always say hello. And uh, I took my kids to see Kinky, uh, and he used his famous line. As you know, Kinky would recycle the same jokes forever and ever. And I brought my kids because I was going to get a book signed. And he stepped up to the microphone and said, you know, I will not say fuck in front of the C-H-I-L-D. That was one of his lines that he used <laughs> for 50 years. And uh, If it uh, works, when, why not? I use the same jokes in jury selection every time, don't you? Yeah. I mean, I uh, and, and Al Zinn, of course, was the master of using the exact same lines over and over again, both like in cross-examination and in Vordire. Funny lines? Well, you might remember when, if you tried a DUI case against him, he would always uh, start out by asking the district attorney for their file because he never did discovery back in the old days. He would just go and grab the district attorney's file and leaf through it and then start asking his questions. <laughs> and the first question was always, officer, isn't it true that alcohol has no odor? And, you know, for him, that was all he needed. <laughs> I, I have to tell you, Harold, and let's kind of connect the dots because obviously Kinky Friedman, I have to ask myself what kind of parent would send their child to a camp of a guy named Kinky Friedman but once you get to know him, he's a philosopher and kind of harmless, I think, and a great musician, great lyrics, and obviously advertises that he's Jewish by uh, the name of his band. But Al Zinn was all Jew, too. I don't know if it was because he announced it or he just seemed like a Jewish fellow. What was it? You know, I never had a trial against him. I negotiated with him a little bit. He was like a tornado. 
I think I got to talk to you more when I was a young deputy DA, but I do know that he had so many cases and he was giving everybody the runaround that we were having office meetings of, hey, you know what? Let's set all these trials for Al's in and let's not let any continuances. And we had to start playing rough with him. I bet you saw that over and over because you were paid 600 and maybe he upped it a little to follow him around. And you had to clean up all those messes, didn't you? Right. Um, it started to be a problem. Um, he used to carry around a briefcase, and in it was a huge calendar book. And in that calendar book, he would just stuff all of the tickets that people had received. <laughs> so when I went to work for him, he did not even have a filing system except for his divorce cases, which, you know, he used divorces basically as a dating pool. He would always tell the judges, you know, I never ask out my clients until after the decree has entered. <laughs> and, um, but he, he would open up the, that big book and just start rifling through it. And he would just have all of his tickets crammed in there. And, uh, you know, finally we convinced him that we needed to have files and it did get to the point where he had to hire some associates and um and then all the DA's offices would just sort of lay in wait until they had the perfect storm of us being set for trial in six courtrooms but only having three or four lawyers to cover it and then usually I would be the one uh who got to pay the price for that or Mr. DeSalvo, Amy Cutson Tom May or any of the other people you know who worked with us. At right, the time. but he had an incredible practice. He had so many clients. How did he do it? Well, he was a native Denverite, and at the time, you know, it was a pretty small community of lawyers, um, is the way I always understood it. And when he got out of the service, um, he went into the DA's office. Um, and the Denver DA's the office? He was a Denver DA. I didn't know uh, that. A deputy DA, right. He was a D Denver deputy DA. And uh, evidently, he got in some trouble because they were trying to bust up a, a gambling ring. And he appeared on a wiretap placing a bet, I, I believe is the story. So he got called into the office and... That was the end of his career as a deputy DA. He was ahead of his time. Right. And, uh, you know, then he just started practicing law. He always, he always told me that the best training he got for being a lawyer wasn't uh, being in law school. It was working at Fonch's Shoes, trying to cover, you know, five or six customers at a time. So he basically applied that same kind of strategy to the way he set cases and he would just go from one courtroom to another and he would go from one county to another as well. And back in the old days, probably 80 to 85, you could do that. And then things got a little more strict in terms of the way cases were handled. And at that point, that kind of became a problem. And that's when, Harold Dubinsky. That's when we had to sort of refigure how we're going to deal with the crush of cases. But, you know, it's just one of those things that all of us have dealt with in the course of our practice. I mean, we, we talk all the time about how, you know, we think Al would have handled all the new technology and stuff. And I mean, I can barely do it only because 
I have good friends who help me and, you know, my kids, but, uh, it's, it's a, it's a whole new world in terms of the way you practice law. It is. For sure. It is. But it, when I think about Allison, I think, uh, I, I get yeah, what part of Denver did he grow up in? Was it East side? West so he grew side, up in, yeah. yeah, sorry about that. No, he grew up on forest street, right in Mayfair. So he's one of those rich, privileged East Side Jews. He would deny that, but um, you know, he grew up. His brother uh, Bob's in. Um, he worked. He was one of the first uh, Jewish attorneys who broke the barrier and practiced, you know, on Seventeenth Street. I believe it was Davis Graham and Stubbs. Where See, he, I, I don't know where any he worked. of this. Fill me in. Right, and so, you know, Al had he, more he of broke, a street He pro- broke, I mean, my grandfather was a Denver lawyer, but it was during the Klan times, and he certainly didn't work on 17th Street. He was in the Sims building on 16th Street. When you talk about the Zen fella breaking the line, do you mean for the white shoe firms on 17th Street? Yes. I see. That's the way it was, that's the way it was always explained to me. Hmm. And what and, about you know, Al? As, was it was he overtly Jewish, or was he uh, was he observant? Did he bring it up? Did he use Yiddish? What was he like? Uh, my best recollection is, uh, I mean, he would never. It was if you met Al, you'd know he was Jewish pretty quickly. He had kind of that whole uh, Borscht Belt sensibility about him. And in many ways, you know, his fraternity brother at CU, uh, Alan Berg, uh, they bonded over that same kind of quick-witted. Right, Borscht Belt stick. Borscht Belt stick, yeah. You know, they were were fast-talking, very funny, very smart. Um, And, you know, back in the day, uh, they were all big-time smokers drinkers and uh and shoe salesmen and shoe salesmen they had that in common because even in this incredible tape that my buddy harold dubinsky provided that everybody will get to listen to they talk about being salesmen and they brag about it hey it's the same as talk radio it's the same as the courtroom we're natural salesmen and you've never been a salesman until you've sold some women's shoes, right? Right. And the way he built his practice after he had to leave the DA's office, my understanding is he was out every single night. So he would go out to eat. He would go to, you know, listen to music. He would be at every single establishment throughout, you know, the metro area, which at the time was pretty small. Um and, you know, sporting events, and uh, he, he said, you know, I don't even need a kitchen in my house because uh, that's the way I've made my living. I, I'm out all the time. People know me. People see me. And uh, that's the way I've built my practice. No wonder he talks about having trouble collecting from some people because he'd probably be out. People would give him their ticket. He'd stuff it in the pocket, and maybe he'd show up. Maybe I I don't know, but it's remarkable the way Al Zinn lived. He was a lifelong bachelor. Did he sport around ladies when he went to these various things? Oh, yes. He had a whole group of very nice women 
that, you know, he dated throughout the years. And uh, he was a committed bachelor. Um, there were obviously some women who thought they could change that. But, uh, you know, there was a whole group of, of those kind of guys who were around. And uh, when I when I met Al, he had just gone through a difficult period uh, where he had not been able to drive for six months because he had gotten a DUI, which he beat at trial, but he had refused to submit to the chemical test. And for that reason, at that time, he lost his license for six months. Um, he did win the, he did win the trial, um, but he had to ultimately served the six months without being able to drive. And that case is a famous case um, that went up on appeal to the Court of Appeals. Do you remember that one? Boy, it's barely coming back to me, but uh, what so, fascinating what, stuff. Well, tell me about there, that case. What does it establish? So the reason that the case is famous is that the the opinion basically says that Al said he agreed to take a blood test, so he was taken to the hospital, but he refused to cooperate at the hospital because he wouldn't sign the form allowing the test to be taken. He wouldn't unbutton his shirt sleeves. And the key fact that was in there was that at one point he hid in the women's bathroom, stood on the toilet. And uh, ultimately they found that his actions constituted a refusal to submit to chemical testing. And so during the time period where he could not drive, he hired a beautiful woman named Ingrid, I believe, um, to drive him around. So I don't know how many people really even remember that at this point. You Probably do. Very few. This is amazing. I, I... Yeah. And, uh, that also helped generate a lot of business, and Al always used to say that you know she had more, more messages when they got back to the office, and than uh, than he did. So it was soon after he reinstated his license that I went to work for him just as a summer intern clerk, um, and basically I just you know followed him around oh and learned goodness. by osmosis. And, and he had more DUI clients than anybody in town. Am I right? Back then, yeah, he was uh, he was probably the number one DUI lawyer here in the metro area, and then there was Harry Holmes up in you know the Boulder area. And this is pre-television advertising or anything like that. How did he get his business? Just from being a local celebrity of sorts? Right, everyone knew him, and uh, you know a lot of the business was generated from people going out to clubs or to restaurants. And so he was at all those clubs and restaurants too. And, you know, he had a working relationship with a lot of police officers. Um, he did a lot of divorces too, and a lot of divorces for police officers and sheriffs. So what just, about other crimes, domestic violence? What about, uh, felonies? Did he take those on as well? Right. We did all sorts of things, but we didn't do a lot of real serious crimes. I remember, you know, right at the beginning, there was a few homicides and a few sexual assaults. But, you know, all the other general crimes, 
that you would defend in either county court or district court. We just didn't get that many of the more serious cases at that point. So give us a rough age of Allison. I figured when I broke in, he seemed like a guy in his 50s or 60s. So what was he, about 30 years older than us? So he was born in 1934, just like Alan Burt. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when I went to work for him, you know, he was in his mid-40s. He died in 1992 at 57. So he was burning the candle at both ends. You know, there was a lot of smoking going on. I mean, back then, as you recall, you didn't have any security going into the courthouse. People were smoking in the courthouse. You know, it was a it was a different world. It was. I used to sit in the police building and detectives would come in to present their case and they'd light up a cigarette and I'd say, you know, can you, what brand are we smoking here? You know, I'm a... Since I'm secondhand smoking. Anyway, those right. were the days. And I bet you got a lot of secondhand smoke. What about Alan Berg? And those guys were fraternity brothers at CU. You must have run into Alan Berg. Um, I mean, at the time, I was so brand new that um, I would just see Alan Berg come in. Um, and he and Al would have very spirited discussions, from what I can recall. And they were fraternity brothers, and then he uh, went back to Illinois uh, to go to law school. And then, you know, my understanding is he had a clothing shop once he came back here. Right. Um, after his difficulties in Chicago, Al was a patron of that shop. And, you know, they had this bond over being fraternity brothers. And, um, you know, it was sort of that Mort Saul kind of very acerbic, very sarcastic right. uh, banter. That, uh, And they were both fast talkers. And, I mean, when you had called me and I said, I tried to remember if I had that tape, and then I found it. It was a tape of a, a radio show that Al appeared on that Alan Berg was the host of. And, it's almost like Rickles and Dangerfield going out at night. And right. They were doing a late-night radio show, and... The affection between those two, it was obvious, and it was touching. Right, and and as we've discussed, and as Alan Berg seems to admit in that tape, um, he developed his caustic, combative, abrasive radio style from watching Al interact with uh, clients in the office. And that was, you know, that was one of the things that uh, was fascinating, also terrifying for me, but you know, a lot of times clients would say that old, you know, that old joke, uh, you know, Al, I didn't come here to be insulted. And Al would basically say, well, you know, where did, where do you usually go? Um, because that was, I guess, in retrospect, one of his ways of exercising client control. But then again, he was also taking calls from his bookie and placing bets during client interviews and stuff like that. So you got to be able to multitask. Time. You know, I've seen... Right. I've seen quite a few things during my 40 years, and and uh, I work with a guy named Harvey Steinberg who has a pretty steady stream of criminal defense clients coming through our office, and it's amazing to me, and he's stood the test of time since he's a lot older than either of us, and you can tell him I said that, Harold, when you see him, which I know you do almost all the time in the courthouse, but 
back to Al's End because Alan Berg talks about it. What was your office like? What was the, you know, Harvey tends to come back from court every morning and during the noon hour, we see a steady stream of clients. What was it like for Al's End? Same sort of thing? It was, yeah, it was an unbelievable high, what do you, you know, I mean, we, it was a high was, volume. High volume. Yeah, that's it. Excellent. Thank you. I mean, it was a high volume practice, um, you know, to go back to one of your earlier points, because I used to, you know, because I was trying to figure out a way to actually make enough money to earn a living as a lawyer. And, um, you know, I told Al, I said, you know, these people come in and you ignore them and you yell and scream at them. And, you know, yeah, you got the you know, the game on the TV. And uh, uh, if they still are going to hire you, then you might want to raise your fees because, you know, you're very reasonable. And, you know, he would always say, well, I want to make sure that, you know, people can afford me. Um, but we would see anywhere from eight to 10 clients every night or on the weekends after being in court all day. Oh, so you would do it in the evening. Most of the time in the evenings. And, you know, we worked on, on uh, Saturdays as well. Well, that's not very and, religious, but that's okay. Right. God will forgive you. And didn't he hold forth at Lafitte's and other fancy restaurants too? Right. Lafitte's, the Quorum, uh, Scotch and Sirloin, if you remember that place. There was a lot of business done there. Uh, La Profile. What, do you have clients um, come in and meet them there? No. Normally, all the client stuff was done in the office and then... Then he would go out, or he'd go, you know, go to the Nuggets game. Um, that was a big, a big thing. Could he yeah. could he handle his liquor? Uh, I always tried to be very careful when I would be out with him because uh, it could, especially in the basement of Lafitte's, I have some some memories. What I used to what I used to always say is. Um, Al's got a gruff exterior. Um, underneath that was a heart of gold. But after a bunch of scotches, uh, underneath that was something you didn't want to be around to witness. It got mean. I used to, in, in jury selection, I, I used to and I still do. I'd say, now alcohol. It has a tendency to make you, some people more of a lover and some people more of a fighter. And I would ask if people would agree with that. Was Al right. more of a fighter or a lover or what? It just it just depended on the timing. And, you know, what but was he, going but on. But he, he would launch in one of those directions. Right. You know, and it would depend on which lady friend he was with. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you couldn't help but get involved in a lot of that stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, my favorite story about... Uh, many of his friends and some of whom I'm still very close with because, you know, we all sort of went through uh, a warlike experience together without actual physical or, you know, ammunition being shot at us. But, um, every day was a fight, just like when you were in the DA's office and you had to figure out a way to, you know, get through it. And always the main thing, uh, was that the client, you know, felt that they were being properly and energetically represented and, 
even with all the craziness, you know, I thought that we always did a pretty good job, you know, with regard to that. When Al started having his problems, you know, part of it, I think, was just that he had a lot of health issues. He didn't take care of himself. He smoked all the time and he never took any time off. And especially doing divorces, once those got a lot more complicated, um, you know, he would just get frustrated and kind of take shortcuts that would ultimately, you know, result in him having problems. But, you know, I never really did much of that work. Um, I'm I did kinda, mostly I'm the criminal defense stuff. I'm kind of feeling sorry for him now, Harold, in a, in a way, because he was only 57. I, I would have guessed he was older than that. And the thing about lawyers is, it's hard to know how to get off the stage for some people. You know, you and I now 40 years into it. I, I hope I'm still going strong. I, I know you are, but we've seen other people who don't get off the stage well. And in the clip we're going right. to play that you provided, Al Zinn is talking about a colleague of his who can't handle it anymore. And Al Zinn and Alan Berg talk about what it takes to be a lawyer my God, what sound you gave me. But have you thought about that much, about lawyers and getting off this stage, how to do it with grace, and when is the right time and the right way to do it? Sure. I, uh, believe it or not, uh, one of the most graceful people uh, you know, is still out there practicing, um, uh, picking and choosing cases, obviously. Uh, the defense lawyer that you did your first trial against as a deputy DA. Jerry Valentine. I love Jerry Valentine. What a class act. Right. He's a, you know, mentor and inspiration. And, uh, um, I think all of us, you know, now that we've been doing it, um, have thought long and hard about it. Um, for me, I think it'll just depend on once I just don't feel that I can properly represent my clients. But at this point, I think, you know, I'm still pretty happy with the way things have gone and, uh, even during the COVID period, um, I've told a lot of people that in a lot of ways during the lockdown and the virtual court and just the stress on the system, you know, many, many cases ended up getting dealt with. And we're talking about, you know, first time offenders without any sort of serious injuries to victims. Um, and, Many times I think a lot of the problems were caused by folks just losing it because of the stresses of the lockdown, whether it was economic or psychological. And so many of these cases during this time period were dealt with in such very fair ways. And it was sort of like, you know, that period between 1980 and maybe 86 or 87, where Judge Alfred Harrell's theory about county court, which is, you know, this is a chance to make people take responsibility for their actions, but give them a chance to get their lives back on track and give them the opportunity to do that by offering them plea bargains where they can prove themselves and maybe end up getting the case dismissed through a deferred judgment. Or, you know, back in the early days, most clients never got convicted of an alcohol-related offense on their first offense. Are you talking about that soft seven you still want from me when you came up to me right. every day in court? Right, begging you for the soft seven um, and, you know, or even a reckless driving. So, 
you know, it was kind of weird. All of us were kind of talking about how stuff like that happened for a while, and now it's all gone again. So it's kind of well. Here's what's weird: is you gave me a tape of Alan Berg and Al Zen talking about that very thing, but the thing that shone through, and it just shined through with you too, is that the ultimate job is to serve your clients. And even with Al Zen, I didn't know him well, but I'm taking it that he fought hard for his clients, and he told Alan Berg about that. People can listen. And what a responsibility that you and I have when somebody says, hey, will you stand with me against the government? Because I'm in a world of trouble. That's quite a responsibility. Right, and I think... I think that uh, I've been very fortunate in a lot of ways to have been able to serve as a lawyer here in the Denver metropolitan area. Um, unlike in Texas, um, where you know a lot of my friends uh, stayed and ended up practicing, where judges were elected, so there was all this corruption that went right. on that way. Um, or in I, Illinois, yeah. you, you hear Berg right. talk about Illinois and the corruption, and it probably contributed to his breakdown because, you know, even if you want to be a good guy, you're caught in that system. Ugh, aren't we lucky to be in Colorado? Right. I've always felt that, you know, uh, we've been very lucky to be here. Haven't really had a lot of that stuff go on. I mean, every now and then, yeah, there's been a defense lawyer or a judge or a prosecutor that's gone off the rails. But, you know, for the most part, things here have proceeded as you would hope a justice system would be constituted. And um, I was lucky enough to try many jury trials. And, you know, what I learned basically from that is uh, I still need to be better after every trial. Um, no, you're just, very you know, good. You, you, you they, have... They call it, yeah. Like, you you so, do well, uh, and and my God, the practice that you've had for 40 years now, do you consider Al Zen a mentor? And if I said you're a, an Al Zen, Al Zen protege, do you right, take... Right, well, you know, they, they, used to, yeah, they used to call us, you know, the Zenettes. And, uh, um, but, but I always used to clarify that uh, uh, as much as I learned from Al, I also learned a, a lot of things not to do from watching him as a uh, uh, Dorothy Binder uh, ju judge in Adams County a, a billion years ago once called me up to the bench and said, son, I don't know what you did back in Texas, but you work for Al Zinn and uh, you just need to be extra careful. Wow. Right. But, you know, Al, Al, Al used to, you know, not really care about being in court on time. You remember all those stories. So sure. there would be a problem. Um, and, uh, uh, Usually when there was a problem, I would get sent in, think, you know, because Al would think, well, they're not going to throw him in jail. He didn't cause the issue. But at a certain point, you know, it became a problem. And that's where, you know, Al and I would have our our issues. You might not remember this one, but um, there was that one trial in front of uh, Larry Lopez Alexander where Al did not show up for the second day of trial. Um he was late because he had another court appearance. And he told me, just go in there and cross-examine the police officer. And I said, well, I'm not going to do that. I wasn't here for the first day of trial. So 
I was Cross fired. Examine him when I haven't even heard the what's right. going on. Right. So, so I was fired. Um, Al came back that day. Judge Lopez put him in jail. It was a front page Oy. story on the paper. Um, over lunch, and uh, you know, Al spent the time playing gin with the sheriff and buying them all pizzas. <laughs> and then he showed up you know, for in the afternoon and made a motion to dismiss because the district attorney had failed to prove that Denver was in Colorado. <laughs> and then Judge Lopez, after doing all that, dismissed the case. And uh, I came into the office Saturday, you know, with a box to clear out my stuff. And he said, you know, that was the greatest marketing ploy of all time. I got all this publicity and, uh, I'm going to give you a raise and take you to Perkins Shear and buy you some clothes. So that's how pathetic, you know, I was at the time that I said, yeah, fine, I'll do it. Oh, my gosh. I have not heard that story, but I vaguely remember that. And Larry Lopez Alexander, didn't he get in trouble? And wasn't he on the radio? And, boy, I barely remember a lot of this stuff. Were you in the middle of that, too? Right. I was. I didn't have to testify ultimately at his trial. There were a lot of people that, uh, you know, did, did the dirty work, but they had to hire uh, Mike Miller's dad, Marty Miller, to basically be the independent person to have him removed from the bench. They had a big hearing and found that he had violated all sorts of different uh, Wasn't he wearing some funny-colored robes and talking about the Bible all the time? Right. He He would do that. He would... If you made a motion, he would say, you know, you've got your law and I've got mine, and he'd hold up the Bible. And yeah, he, you know, put a lot of lawyers in jail, found them in contempt for what ultimately turned out to be no good reason. It was a very tense, ugly time. And then how did he end up on the radio? Well, I think, uh, you know, once he left the bench, uh, he somehow got hooked into the whole radio gig. They like I mean, controversy. And, they, and and Christians dominate AM radio. And Do you remember what station? I don't. I don't remember what station. I you know, I found another tape with him on it, um, so, but I didn't get to listen to it. To what a what repository you are. The tape that we're able to play on the podcast, thank you so much for that. How did you make these? Oh, I, you know, I mean... Uh, I came home and real, you know, I knew Al was going to go into the station to be on the show, and I thought it would be hilarious uh, because you just never knew what was going to come out of Al's mouth. I mean, Al did things that no one else would do, uh, except for maybe Harvey. Um, but you know, they they sort of had a zone of immunity around them just because of who they were. But you know, as time has gone on and new judges come on the bench, that's all to a large degree gone away. Um, but you know, Al would always be late, and every now and then a judge would punish him for that. Um, So, you know, the famous story is he had a divorce hearing in Denver one day, and Al was there about a half hour early. The judge was late because Al had parked in the judge's parking space. (laughs) So. Oh, boy. Yeah. And for a while, he was sort of banned from Boulder um, because he was always late if he went to Boulder. and so was was he hitting on his clients, or was that even against the law? Now it is. They they made it a rule. Was that made because of guys like Al said? Well, Al always said he would. You know, 
he, he never asked a divorce client out until after the decree entered. Um, right, but during I, the representation, he, which is not a right, lot he, right. Did, right, and he would always make it clear when he would represent a prostitute that he did not take his payment in kind, which many people felt was the only thing he retained from law school. <laughs> you mean the in-kind language? Yes, the in-kind language. And... Uh, I don't have permission to use his name, but a federal judge told me that Al appeared in federal court once with a very beautiful woman, and um, Al didn't go to federal court a lot. And uh, he asked to approach the bench and with the U.S. attorney, and he said, uh, uh, Your Honor, uh, um, please take a look at my client. She's one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen. You guys have to do something for me here. And uh, the judge told me that that was the most cogent legal argument Al ever made. <laughs> yeah, you can understand that. There's, there's a compelling desire, and the evidence is right there. Look at her, Your Honor. Anyway. Right. So he, uh, you know, he did, he did stuff like that. Uh, and I talk about it all the time that, if I had been smart, I would have set up a tripod and a movie camera and just taped him. It would have been an amazing documentary because no one would have believed, you know, the stuff that happened. Boy, what a life. And again, I, I'm life. just surprised that it was only age 57. And when, when people listen to this tape, uh, they talk about Al had had open heart surgery and seemed to be recovered. But... Uh, both guys are kind of looking back. It's it's just fascinating. How many times have you listened to the tape? It, it really holds up. Yeah. I mean, uh, his first heart surgery was right after I took the bar. Um, so that would have been February of 1981. And... He was going in for the surgery, and I had planned to take a trip for about a month after that. And, you know, of course, Al thought that was insane because you know, no one ever took trips. But, you know, I told him, I said, I'll postpone it if you want me to. And he said, well, you know, if I die, you're going to have to come back and look for another job anyway, so you might as well take your trip. Um, but, you know, he was back in court when he was still oozing blood from the surgery and, you know, bumming cigarettes from people. You know, it was just it was just a nightmare and you know we were all just scrambling about him trying to keep things from going off the rails for a long time so it, you know in retrospect it's kind of amazing that we were able to get that done but luckily we were able to find some other folks that were willing to help us right all out through through all of that he all of that nightmare he was, stuff he was a pretty young man for that first heart surgery did he kind of have a death wish he kept smoking and drinking did did he have a feeling that he was going to die young no i just i think he's just one of those guys that uh that's the way he chose to live his life and no one was going to tell him that what he did uh was wrong you know the gambling the smoking the drinking i mean it was a lifestyle that a lot of uh you know cops reporters and uh, attorneys at that time that's the way they you know live their life especially you know for al who was a committed bachelor and he loved sports 
who loves sports, you know, he would go to what he called the God box on the high holidays. But other than that, uh, you know, that wasn't a big deal. What show uh, would he go to on the high holidays? He went to Temple Emmanuel. Had, had he grown up at Temple Emmanuel? Probably so on these. Uh, I think I think so. Yeah. I mean, his his good friend was Dr. Gary Friedland, who lived like on the next street over. And Gary would always yell and scream at Al. Uh, um, and I think when Al finally died, if I remember this correctly, uh, Gary told me that you know it was the it was medical science history because it was the world's longest recorded suicide. Hi. Yay! Is right. Was, yeah. it, so there was, was there a ceremony at Temple Emanuel? Yes. Yes, there was a very well-attended service, and then he was buried at Mount Nebo. Interesting. Why not Fairmont? I think that's, I don't, you know, I I honestly don't know the answer to that. Fairmont's I don't know if his folks. Normally the Temple right. Emanuel burial place, right? Mount I, Nebo, you know, more for BMH. Right. But that's inside folks... death politics right there. What about his politics? Was he political, Al Zinn? I think he was one of those classic, you know, Democrats. Um, although he just was there to, to rabble rouse. I don't really remember much political stuff that we ever discussed. Um, not we even had time for it. But uh, I remember we had a case once where our client was driving down Grant Street and uh, hit a car and then didn't stop but didn't you know, really take off. It stopped at the next red light, and the car he hit was the uh, governor's limousine. And uh, at the light, the governor at the time, Dick Lamb, jumped out of the car and grabbed our client and pulled him out of the driver's seat and turned off the car. So Al wanted to go to trial just because I think he had felt slighted once at a restaurant by Governor Lamb. And, you know, he was asking him questions like, how many double doubles did you have uh, that night? You know that you needed a driver. Just antagonizing him, and mm. you know, you know, you know, when that was, was part of Al's and getting a little. Right, that was part of Al's uh, theory of how to do business. You know, if you're not going to give me what I want, then I'm going to take a year off your life. And you know, whether I win or lose isn't really the the case. I mean, you just got to know that I'm willing to go to trial even though I have a terrible case and the governor is the lead witness against me. Um, and uh, during a break in the trial, I remember we were outside and a reporter asked Al, Al, I see that your client works at Bud's Mufflers. What does he do there? And I was like, he's uh, a fucking brain surgeon. What the fuck do you think he does there? You know? <laughs> Did they print the phone quote? I think they, I, I don't remember, <laughs> I don't remember how they did it. But, you know, that's the sort of thing that endeared him to DAs like, like when Harvey was a DA, because, you know. Right. Harvey was a Harvey, DA for, for a while in Arapahoe County. That's interesting. I, I'm right. Sure I mean, Harvey. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about Harvey is, because uh, I've asked him several times about some of those cases where he, he beat us like a drum. Yeah. He still remembers all the details. You mean back when he was a prosecutor? He's so bragged right. about that? Wow. Right. He still remembers all the details. That's something. What about Allenberg? You talked about him coming in the office and stuff, but what 
a blow to this community and to Al Zen personally and probably to you too. Do you remember when he was murdered? What happened from your perspective and how you felt? How Al Zen felt? Tell us about it. Right. Well, you know, I called one of Al's old girlfriends that I still talk to uh, today just to try and get her recollections. Um, I, I, I did not get a hold of the woman who I think was in the, uh, in the office with Al that night and who went to the radio show to be with Alan Berg uh, later on. Um, but Al was very close with Alan, even though I didn't really have much interaction with him. I mean, he would just come into the office on a regular basis and he and Al you know, would socialize at times. Um, and, uh, yeah, I listened to him on the radio. We all did because he was controversial and, um, you know, he was going after the bad guys in a lot of ways. Um, and he was, and, and his politics was a little unpredictable. He'd give it to people on both sides, but would you agree with me? Go ahead. Would you agree with me that he'd have, Zero tolerance for Donald Trump. Right. I mean, you know, like, uh, I mean, it's a good thing Hunter Thompson, you know, mm-hmm. took himself out because he wouldn't even believe what what's happening now. Um, and, yeah, I mean, he was, uh, what's, I mean, the story behind Allen's becoming a radio person, I think, is that um, there was, and this is what, uh, one of Al's old girlfriends was telling me is that he had that clothing store right? and he was a big promoter and he was, uh, you know, people would come in and he had that mouth on him where he would just spout off about all sorts of stuff. And there was a guy that had, had a radio show here Lawrence who had Grossman. him on as a, Lawrence right, who, right. And, uh, who had him on as a guest. Um, and then ultimately when, when he, um, and I think his last name was Gross, Lawrence Gross. Yeah, Lawrence when Gross, he got, or, right. When he, got, when, he got, when he got promoted and sent to San Diego, um, he said, you know, this is the guy that should take over my job. And I think that tape from 1981 is, you know, sort of at the beginning of Alan's career in radio um, when he had switched over to that. Um, and... Uh, no, it's I mean, an amazing we all listened rise. to him, and then we were all, uh, you know... I, I don't. I just can't dig up specific memories of anything other than we were all aware of the fact that he was going after these white supremacists. Um, and you know, when he got killed, gunned down in his driveway, um, Al Zinn was one of the first people on the scene. I'm sure that's in Stephen's book. I I I, I seem to remember a police officer calling out because he knew they were close. Um, but I could be wrong about that. It could have been that Alan's ex-wife, Judith, found out about it and called out. But he was on the scene while it was being investigated. And he had called me, you know, to tell me that it had been a professional hit job. He was pretty clear. And I think he was on the news that night talking about it. You know, it was a, a horrible time because... He was obviously killed for what he was saying on the radio and the fact that he was Jewish and, you know, these these nut jobs um, were very clear about who they wanted to who they wanted to kill. Um, so I asked Al's friend if she remembered anything else and and she said she did remember Allenberg's funeral. 
that Lawrence Gross flew in from California to talk. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I know you, you want to try and bring these strands together between Alvin and Alan Berg. And I thought she told me a great story about that because Lawrence Gross was telling stories about his friendship with Alan Berg and how he thought he would be a great radio host and, um, started telling a lot of off color stories and people were laughing and crying to the point where Lawrence Gross was looking for a Kleenex and Al was on the front row and stood up and offered him his handkerchief. And Lawrence Gross said, God, no, Al, I don't want your handkerchief. <laughs> Who knows where it, that has been, you know, one of those kind of right. uh, deals. So, um, and you know, at Al's funeral, it was the same sort of thing. They were trying to make it as straight as possible. But I remember when the rabbi said, and Al loves sports and everyone died laughing because Al didn't really love sports. He loved betting on sports. Right. So, well, that's part of uh, sports, but but Al's hand must have been right. shook up to see his buddy gunned down like that. Right. I mean, it was a it was a terrible thing, and it was pretty clear, you know, what the reasons were behind it. And you know, the hope at that time, obviously, was that once they found these folks, prosecuted them. Although, if I remember correctly, they ended up being prosecuted like federally, right, for RICO um, violations. And there I was in the DA's office, a young deputy class of 81 like you, not quite at the level to make that kind of decision, but I wanted my office to go after it. You don't come to Denver to kill a Jewish talk show host because he's Jewish and because he's on the air and get away with it without prosecution. And I mean, I love Norm Early in a lot of ways, but I, I just didn't like that decision. I have Federico Pena is going to be my guest in a couple of weeks. He was the mayor back then. I wonder what he thought about it. But did you think about it? And I wonder what Al Zinn thought about it. Did he think, wow, come on now. They, let's let's yeah, have no, this trial in Denver. I mean, I was doing three trials a week and, you know, covering right. all sorts of different courts. So I, you know, sadly it wasn't anything that I have any specific recollection of other than, you know, it was just a horrible, shocking deal. And it was at the time inconceivable that something like that could happen, you know, in this country. And sadly, you know, the hope that prosecuting them and putting them all away for decades, if not several hundred years, like some of them got, if I remember correctly, um, it was just the tip of the uh, white supremacist iceberg that exists. Yeah, good so, thing that's gone away, huh? Yeah. So I... Uh, I uh, mean, well, before you leave us, I want to give you a chance. God, I'm grateful for you coming into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. And thanks again for the unbelievable tapes of Al Zinn and Alan Berg. It's great talk radio, but Harold Dubinsky, you're so bright. And now 40 years of practicing law in Colorado and still going strong. What the hell is going on in America? Yeah, well, that's the last thing that I should be in front of an open mic about. But, you know, it's it's so depressing what's happened. And, I mean, we all know what the reasons are. Um, Fox News poisons people. It brainwashes people. Um people that are smart and who might think differently than you and you used to respect their opinion. Now you don't anymore because there's absolutely no way to have a logical, reasonable discussion 
about these issues. I mean, between Rush Limbaugh and Fox News and then all the local people who do the same thing. And I know I know you're close with uh, Mr. Kaplis, but I, I hold him as responsible for the state of America as anybody else because, uh, you know, pumping out dis and misinformation, it's just it's just unbelievable, especially in a situation that we, uh, uh, you know, we're facing this pandemic where normally we'd all pull together to try and figure right. out a way through, especially when we had this medical miracle that, uh, you know, hopefully remains such that because there were certain people that realized that this kind of a virus could spread throughout the world, that they had been working on these vaccines and everything just became politicized as we all know. But um, I went back to read um, Leon Jaworski's book, The Right and the Power, a couple of years ago. I don't know if you've looked at it recently. I mean, uh, great you know, Texas, a lawyer, Texas born lawyer who spent some right. of his waning He's, years at Colorado College. I've not read that book, but tell us why you did. Well, uh, one of my friends growing up was Robert Draper, who's a great journalist um, and has written many fascinating books as well. And he's, uh, Leon was his grandfather. Um, and, you know, Robert always used to say that his grandfather saved democracy back during the Watergate era. And it's true. In many ways, um, there was a crisis being faced, just like during the Trump presidency. Um, and so I reread the book to see, you know, what Leon's thoughts were. And like most lawyers' books, it's not, you know, it's written to some degree like a lawyer. But, you know, the salient points that I took away from it were, number one, there was a judge who said, you know, this is the law and we're going to follow the law. And he treated everyone with the same level of dignity and everyone was afraid to violate any of the judge's orders. Um, to the point where Nixon had the evidence, the mm -hmm. tape that he could have destroyed mm -hmm. and he didn't because he was afraid of what the judge would do to him if he did once the tape the tape's existence you know came into being and then they argued about whether or not it could be turned over and all that other stuff but um you know leon said in many ways if the wagons had remained circled and you know john dean didn't realize that one time when he went into the office that nixon was trying to set him up and make him totally responsible um that the whole thing could have just Mm -hmm. gone away. And he said the other thing that was crucial to be successful in having him removed from office, because basically he was running a criminal enterprise at that point, um, was the fact that many Republicans said, you know, this isn't the way that America works. So, And where are they now? We, right. So we don't have those people now. And, you know, there was still a lot no, of rancor in the office. In, in fairness, we've got Kinzinger, Cheney, a couple others, not too many. Right. And the fact that the fact that, you know, the powers that be would turn turn on Liz Cheney for saying, you know what, uh, having an insurrection uh, where you try and kill people, um, uh, your elected representatives, you know, that's one step too many. It's not a huge ask to say. 
uh, you need to be uh, removed from office for that so you never appear again. But you know, it's that whole cultish thing that has grown up around this this nightmare. And, you know, the third factor that we deal with now that we didn't have to deal with before is social media and how, you know, these pe people get, I call it algorithm poisoned because their feed just continuously blast them with dis and misinformation. So, uh, you know, the one thing that I don't think it's talked about enough that just from sitting in my suburban house is that Trump could have so easily used the pandemic to his advantage and won in a landslide and imposed all sorts of martial type law to make sure that the virus didn't spread. Do you ever think about that? Uh, I think about a lot he, of things he could have done if he was a little smarter, and thank God he isn't. But uh, Right. It is, right. He, 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 may, he may get another chance. That's what really worries me. Right, because then we, all, we always come back to the Democrats finally uh, winning and then getting in the circular firing squad. Uh. Yeah, it's just, it's just a terrible thing to be old enough to have you know, witnessed the cycle uh, again and again. But anyway, Robert's got a new book coming out. Uh, I think relatively soon. Uh, that's you know he during the pandemic he he wrote a book. It was the definitive look into what caused us to invade Iraq when there was uh, mm -hmm. no reason to. Right. Um, and uh, you know all the people uh, that I mean, there's been a lot of stuff written about it, but this was kind of the definitive book. And this next one is about. Yeah, what happened on January 6th. He was there. I mean, he left about 30 minutes before things got really ugly. But he said, you know, there was no doubt in his mind that that was going to happen. And, you know, I don't I don't know, you know, the details of his book. But let's assume they got Mike Pence and hung him there. Would it have changed anything? I don't think so. I read... I, no, and I, and I, think, I think they had the Secret Service in on it. And now you hear about locked doors and how they tried to get the vice president to go into a car and he wouldn't to leave the Capitol. Right. And they were going to occupy the Capitol to make sure it was delayed. And then who knows what would have happened if they wouldn't have been able to come right back. It was a coup attempted in our lifetime. It was violent. It was organized by the president of the United States. And my God... Just as you talk about Jaworski, and I think I was thinking about Archibald Cox, people who had the bravery to use the system, I think this, Harold Dubinsky, after 40 years of practice, that lawyers, and you brought up a former radio colleague of mine, all lawyers have a special responsibility right now to stand up to this bullshit, call it out, call out the big lie and the people who uh, you know, circulate it, and give oxygen to it, prosecute them to the full extent of the law, and I don't see it happening. I've run shows about Merrick Garland's timidity, but Harold, you're the voice of reason. You always calm down, Allison. Calm me down. Isn't the, isn't the rule of law at stake right now? Yeah, to me, it's unbelievable that uh, I mean, maybe maybe Merrick Garland shouldn't have been a Supreme Court justice because. Uh, he's got enough evidence to go right now. I mean, I always think about Georgia. I mean, I can understand why yes. they haven't filed 
a felony attempting to influence a public official in Georgia because there would be an immediate pardon by the governor. That's the only reason why it hasn't been filed. I mean, even I uh, could prove that case at this point. It's all on tape. I so, know it. And, I, he, yeah, and I, that's probably I, why he went ahead with January 6th, because all that shit came out on January 3rd. He thought, I'm probably going to jail. Let's do something to make him forget about it. And then on January 6th, I thought he was going to be arrested that day. But he probably right. calculated, I won't be arrested because I'm president. And if I can make it delayed after two weeks, they won't arrest me. They'll let me go to Mar-a-Lago. And then I can delay. I can stall. By the way, you know, we've seen the best in courtrooms delay and stall. But this guy is unbelievable. Right. To me, it's a... It's mind-boggling. And, you know, Jenna Ellis and Ugh. and Rudy and Sidney Ugh. Powell, I mean, if you or I made those arguments in court, our law licenses would have already been pulled. So, Did you see Jenna Ellis finally got sued? No. Yeah, she got sued by a Pennsylvania official she attacked who had two heart attacks, and it was just bullshit. It was part of this Dominion bullshit. If you read Seth Abrams and... Jenna Ellis was brought in to bring her religious angle, that Sir Thomas More Society, and they had a big call with the president leading up to the insurrection. People should read Seth Abramson, but Harold Dubinsky, you are so smart about these things. Can we can we get past it? I mean, yeah, you cleaned I, up a I, lot of messes in your life that Al Zinn left behind others. You're a miracle worker. Can America no, it's not come back be me. I'm, <laughs> as much as I worry about the future for my grandbabies, yeah, it's not going to be me who cleans it up, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. But what do you think is going to happen? What do you predict next? Well, I, uh, once again, I always defer to people that have more experience than me. So I, I remember uh, emailing uh, my friend Robert right before, you know, the election in 2016. And we all know that Hillary was the worst possible candidate. So, you know, Obama made a lot of mistakes. He didn't figure out a succession plan for younger Democrats to move forward in the power structure. He didn't, you know, he, he, when Hillary could have been disappeared, he brought her back and tried to rehabilitate her as secretary of state. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, you know, all that stuff. Um, uh, I emailed Robert and I said, what do you think? He goes, I think that, you know, Hillary will squeak out a win, but uh, I'm preparing for tyranny. And, you know, unfortunately, his worst fears came true. And uh, to me, it's, it's, uh, if you just put it on a personal level, where people who, you know, you might have been on the different side of the political aisle with for, for years, but you could still have a civil relationship with, it got so incredibly ugly that, you know, you couldn't really do that anymore. So I don't, I don't know. I, I try and limit my news intake. I'm going to leave that up to you and the rest of the, the experts. Um, but I do read the shower cap blog every Friday. Do you read him at no. all? If you just look up a uh, shower cap blog.com, he's some guy out of Chicago. And, uh, to me, he's the best reporter and summarizer of the terrifying strangeness of our present time. But I, I will tell you this. I remember, and I know I'm 
you know, we're wasting a lot of time. No, now, it's but fine. I That's the but beauty I, of a podcast. And you're an excellent you know, I, guest. Uh, I mean, right now we have showercapblog.com. Right. Showercapblog.com. Robert Draper. Robert Draper. Yeah, I'm telling you, these, yeah, these are the people that, yeah. So, collected so I, works uh, of Kinky Friedman and the Texas Jew Boys. Always, always should read Kinky. Um, you know, I. He writes one of my books, favorite, too. Yeah, one of my favorite Kinky sayings is money can buy you a fine dog, but only love can make it wag its tail. And I remember using that at uh, one of my kids uh, at my son's bar mitzvah, and I remember, you know, the rabbi saying, I love that line, but I don't think I can use it at weddings, which I thought <laughs> was a great line by Rabbi Zorin. Um, but, uh, you know, the shower cap blog, he does amazing work. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's unbelievable that people look back favorably uh, to the Bush Cheney experience, you know, compared to this, it's just, uh, because, you know, it's we true, all had though. horrible, uh, I mean, I had, you know, 60 books that were piled up by the bed and I just realized I can't do that again. Um, so, uh, when Robert said he was bracing for tyranny because he felt that, you know, things had just got so skewed, um, uh, he turned out to be right. And, you know, the one thing that, and I'm not going to get into it because, like I said, I'm old. I'm here to enjoy my grandparents. I mean, my grandbabies and to be a grandparent. But but ultimately, you know, the overlap between religious folks who, if they were honest to the true precepts of their supposed beliefs, would be against everything that's being done in its name. Um, and, you know, that's a cold 30 to 40 percent of the voting public. And how do we get over that? I don't know. I, I think uh, that our generation needs to pass away. And I don't see as many young people being part of that religion, but maybe I'm not looking in the right place. Yeah. I mean, I and, you know, for teachers and election workers and and healthcare workers to be facing this constant assault on top of, you know, them just trying to do best job. It's just, it's madness is what it is. And it's, it's terrifying. Well, I'd like to think that the truth can come out and we're on the verge of a lot of technological breakthroughs and you and I can still have conversations like this. And at least where we live in Colorado, uh, I don't see Trump, uh, Trump mania prevailing. Thank God we live in right. a state like Colorado. So, um, Amen. We we've seen some dark periods. Brought up Watergate. Uh, you brought up when we were getting out of law school was kind of a rough time. Inflation uh, is bad now. It was much worse back then, and we've seen it come and go, Harold. And somehow I I think that your kids, my kids. Your grandkids, if I'm lucky enough, hopefully they'll still have a Denver uh, that will work. But I'm glad you came from Texas. I'm glad Alzen got you to stay because I think you've had a great career. You've always been friendly with me, and I appreciate it very much. And this this interview in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, very special to me. I hope you enjoyed it. I did my best. I know that uh, I'm not as loquacious and as articulate as I used to be, but uh, I appreciate it. And uh, I hope you go 
read some shower caps. I think you might enjoy it. I will. And none of us are quite what we once were, but uh, we have a lot except of wisdom. For, except, except for Harvey. He just gets better and Harvey. stronger. Yeah, there's Harvey Steinberg. Absolutely. But thanks again for those tapes and letting me use them and put them out there. Uh, I think they really illustrate the charm of Allen Berg and uh, people get to know the Colorado legal legend, which was Al Zinn. And, and for better or worse, I mean, my God, Al Zinn, we're, we're still talking about him. What a character, huh? So Al's last words to, uh, to Zandy and I, Mr. Zandy DeSalvo, another famous noted Denver lawyer, um, he was trying to get one of us to file a lawsuit on his behalf. And uh, just a couple days before he died, he left a message. And I have a, I have a copy of that on tape. Um, and, uh, you know, I might ask for you to, you know, return that cassette because since I found it, I've had other people who say they want it, but I'll, I'll tell them where else they can find it. Um, but uh, on that tape, he says to Zandy, he goes, I asked Carol, he's, Ballless, gutless, like he always was, and uh, and and Tony's worthless. Tony Cicerelli, uh, who's still with us as well, he won't do anything. Uh, and I'm asking you, but I know asking you is a waste of breath as well, because you don't have the guts. God gave a gopher. So all of us that you know work for Al, that's our code to each other. Is that none of us had the guts that God gave a gopher. Thanks, Al, for that tribute. Oh my gosh, what a <laughs> what a final thought! And yeah, Harold, and the thing is, you have the perfect disposition to put up with that because not many people would have. And and you're you are surviving and thriving. And God bless you and your grandchildren tomorrow. You've got your priorities straight. And thanks for giving us a window into the late Al's in the late. Alan Berg, and the very much alive Harold Dubensky. Thanks, man. All right. Take care of yourself. All right. Thanks a lot. See My you, best Harold. to your family. Bye-bye. Okay. Same to yours. Bye-bye. Wow. When you've been practicing law for almost 40 years like me, you learn a thing or two. If you have a legal problem, give me a call. 303 861 2800 at Springer and Steinberg. We do all kinds of law. Call me 303-861-2800. We will help solve your problem. Thank you. Troubadour, Shabbat Shalom. How are you? I am well. Shabbat Shalom, Craig. These Shabbats come pretty early in the afternoon. Not a lot of time for walking. Plus, I understand you went walking without me. I did. And you had an amazing encounter? Well, I would have I would have invited you, but you were working, and, and I managed to steal home while the sun was still shining. Tell me what happened. When, when was this? Where well, was this? It was two days ago. It was down where we walk. Mm-hmm. Coyote Country down there uh, behind Kent high, behind Kent High School. Right. And um, it, I I took a nice long walk. The sun was still shining, and then the sun went down behind the lake. And I was coming back, and it was dusk. Okay. Right. So I'm thinking about a million things, like often people do during their walks. I'm thinking about work and my kids, and and 
you know, what we're doing the next day. And my mind was busy. It, my mind was full of stuff that, you know, if you, if you meditate, it's the full of, it was full of the, the stuff that you try to, to ri, rid of, be, be rid of, oh, right? To calm I yourself. Okay. So I, so I, I literally, I was thinking about that. I stopped in my tracks and I said out loud, I bet if I were just to stop thinking and look around, I'd see an owl. And I said that out loud because I often talk out loud. I turned to the left, and there, <laughs> your, pups, reacting your pups, to this your pups are wrestling. Right. And, and they're sitting on a cottonwood branch, almost eye level with me, and, and maybe no more than 50 feet away was a beautiful great horned owl looking at me. And it was within, no exaggeration, within two seconds of my having stopped and said, I bet I'll see an owl. And, and what the interesting thing about that, I mean, we, we can all believe in coincidences and I'm sure it was, it was probably a coincidence. And yet I thought, is it possible when someone's will is strong enough, can you actually will things into existence? That's what I was intrigued by. Or did you intuit the presence of the owl? Because we have seen owls before in this neighborhood and they do make their presence known at dusk. It's true. But the timing was just was just so amazing, and, and and you're right. I have thought about it. Is there some way I might have intuited out of the corner of my eye, having right. seen it? It's all possible. Maybe you smelt it. Maybe some you are heard it. Maybe you heard it. Something some, beyond. I doubt I heard it. They're they're pretty stealth. I told you Ben and Missoula on Elm Street. There, sensed a bear. Turned. There was a bear. But it's an interesting question, and it's fun to believe that uh, sometimes we can kind of create create our own reality. You know what's the scariest animal to see if you turn? Um, a grizzly? A human with a gun. Okay. I just played for you the sound of Allenberg with Al Zinn, and those guys were good buddies. They happened to be Jewish. The way they got on together and... I've had the benefit of listening to Harold Dubinsky, You Can Win, the podcast airs. But Allison was a confirmed bachelor, had a different assortment of women. He went to all the great clubs that exist in 70s, even the early 80s. Remember Lafitte's and some fancy restaurants where you would take a fancy woman and then Al Zen would go with Alan Berg, who had been divorced from Judith, and he liked beautiful women. Who doesn't? They were out and about on the town. And do you remember those days? What do you remember about the late, great Alan Berg? You know, I was never a, a huge fan of talk radio until I started listening to you, Craig. But um, I did come across him once in a while. And, and, you know, um, I, I can't say I ever I ever listened for long periods of time, but he would intrigue me. He was... He was uh, he was a, a forceful personality. Right, and he spoke about being Jewish. Occasionally, I'll bring that up as well. And um, that was interesting to me. And it would be frustrating when I'm driving to Shul and be on the air on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. But then again, why am I driving? Why am I listening to the radio? Who am I to judge? And ultimately, he paid the ultimate price just like in the Holocaust for being Jewish. It didn't matter if you were observant or not. Just being a Jew was enough, right? 
I don't. I mean, it, I'll have to hear more about the what were the motives of these people. I mean, I'm Jew sure, hatred. Yeah, and it bothers me. And I bring it up throughout the show about Peter Boyles and him pretending he was best friends with Allen Berg. I don't believe it. And you don't tarnish a memory like that. And uh, he was killed because he was a Jew, and P Peter Boyles never brings that up, really, because, you know, maybe he has something in common with those people. The people who killed him were just like the people who are perpetrating the big lie, the kind of people who broke in on January 6th. Thank God Steve Bannon's now been arrested. I hope things start to fall apart. Trump idiotically talked about hey, these people were justified to want to hang Mike Pence. He screwed up the vote count, you know, because he had a plan to perform a coup. Anyway, so back to your question about Alan Burke. He was killed because he was a Jew, a prominent Jew, a Jew who spoke on talk radio and announced he was a Jew, and he was a Serbic and all of that, and he would put down bigots like the bigots who killed him, but the shame of it, and Stephen Singular points out that these schmageggies, these no-goodniks, you know, it's worse than that. These momsers, bastards in Yiddish, they used to just be, you know, maybe they could round up 10, 20 guys. But now with the Internet, they can all get together, and it's really a scary time. And let's think about the good times. But before we go there and leave the Holocaust and more Jew murders— Allenberg was killed June 18, 1984. What was going on 40 years before? It's 1944, World War II, the final solution, Jews being killed. Fast forward 40 years from Allenberg uh, being alive and well and doing an interview with Al Zinn that I've got from November 19, 1981, thanks to Harold Dubinsky and just serendipity that that falls in my lap and I get the privilege of playing it for the world. And you just listen to it. And this week, it will be 40 years from that recording. 40 years. And uh, it's just like, what are we learning now? What are we doing? Are we still going to have ancient bigotries and stupidity ruin life for the rest of us? I hope that's not the case. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem you say, what, have we, what are we learning? It doesn't sound like we've learned anything. And we've got algorithms drawing us further and further apart, but I know a song that's perfect for this kind of thing, and it was written back in the early 80s by a couple of really cool dudes from Denver Boulder, T5, Bayadares, and then uh, Dave Gunners, our troubadour, a group called the Scatterbrains, and... Uh, What's the name of your song, Sometimes You Hurt Me? Sometimes You Hurt Me. How, how did you guys come up with this one? Well, we were writing zany, zany songs at the time, and you'll hear it, it is. It, you know, it, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a song of, of anguish. And, uh, but it's kind of deep and deep inside because you say, Sometimes You Hurt Me, and you say, I'm feeling pain, but it's on the inside. Right. I'm feeling pain, and then in in the bridge, he's finding a way to uh, to come out of the pain. Right, the yeah. hell's in yeah. Alan Bergway. Well, what is the bridge answer when you're feeling the pain? Right, go out, take a beautiful woman to a nice dinner. 
Don't think about it. Go out drinking with our fellas. What a great lyric. Do you remember the 1980s? What a different time it was. It was. It was a fun time. We were, we were in our 20s. It was young. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I give you the Scatterbrains, Dave Gunders, and T5. Enjoy. Sounds like sirens. Could it be? Nuclear attack, nuclear attack on all of Denver Boulder. Everybody head to Nywat. Yeah. <laughs> 
So what a great show that was. I think so. How about you? Tell a friend. Give us the top rating. Subscribe. Do everything you can to make our show popular. I like talking to you. I like talking to the people who like you. I like Dave Gunders. Our troubadour delivered again, didn't he? What about Stephen Singular? Can't wait for the re-release of the book. You have to read the book. You have to read the new forward. And then Harold Dubinsky. Man, you've turned me on to a lot of great things, and I can't thank you enough. Oh, and just one more thing. If you still respect or admire or even tolerate Donald Trump after this sound of him justifying violence against Mike Pence for not carrying out the coup, if you still support that guy in any way, shape, or form, or if you're a member of a party that still respects him and glorifies him, like the Republican Party, then examine what you are doing and tell me why anybody should have respect for you. Listen to the president who was and hopefully never will be again. Listen, as he tells Jonathan Carl from ABC News that the people who wanted to hang Mike Pence were employing common sense and were justified. Think about it, folks. We can do so much better than this as a country. We have to. And again, I listen to Allenberg. I've talked to people who know him. There's no way he would have put up with Donald Trump. He would have been outspoken against him. And maybe he could not have survived that. Talk radio has been taken over by the people who sell their soul to Donald Trump. And it's disgusting. And it has fallout. And it should have fallout. Because Donald Trump, he's behind the big lie that led to January 6th, the attempted coup against our country. And it's time for people to wise up. And I have a feeling it may be happening. Listen to Jonathan Carl interviewing Trump at Mar-a-Lago. This guy convicts himself if we only listen. Thank you. Were you worried about him during that, that siege? Were you worried about no, his safety? No, I thought he was well protected, and I, I had heard that he was in good shape. Mm-hmm. No, because uh, I had heard he was in very good shape. But, but no, you I heard those it, chants. That was terrible. I mean, was, you know, the... He could have. Well, the people were very angry. They're saying, "Hang my." Because pants. it's it's common sense, John. It's common sense that you're supposed to protect. How can you, if you know a vote is fraudulent, right? Yeah. How can you pass on a fraudulent vote to Congress? Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, nine to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.